discordian hat and just say full chaos and go for it. The woke prediction markets are difficult. Across my breadth of talking to people about this topic, a lot of them seem to think that these group dynamics are being organized or driven by a, a, a central cabal. And I think that's exactly wrong. They are not influencing it. They are being influenced by it. And like, if you look at like sort of like the, the level of political violence, we see political violence on TV. We're like, oh my god, it's horrible. But then we look at base rates, right? Like the level of, of it's nothing compared to the seventies. Once people start to realize that their vote doesn't matter, that's when you start to hear revolutions. So this, this, you know, at the very minimum, the facade has to stay up. Otherwise, the system doesn't work. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today I'm speaking with BJ Campbell, who writes the Substack Handwaving Freakoutery and has been a longtime friend and interlocutor. What's a very interesting situation is that I feel that we've been agreeing more and more on the abstract analysis of many of these social interactions, but we disagree frequently when it comes to applying them in practice. You'll hear that scattered throughout the podcast, and hopefully you'll enjoy it. We discuss a variety of topics, including egregores, a term he uses to describe a type of online conformity behavior, updating moralities, statistics, guns, evolutionary psychology, vaccines, wokeness, war, nationalism, political violence, January 6th, QAnon, coordination problems, religions in the online era, gun prepping, the post-liberal right, Curtis Jarvin, crime rates, Sherry Scissor, and why everything needs more chaos. That was a lot of topics, but we also discussed for a lot of hours, four of them. And I really hope you'll enjoy the entire episode. Of course, if you like the episode and want to support us, what you can do is, of course, subscribe and let a friend know, either on social media or in real life. You might wonder why I keep insisting on this every episode, and that's because it really makes a difference. When I see people share online, it certainly makes a difference, and I'm sure that the real-life equivalent also has a great impact. You can help us out, and you can also help your friend find some, hopefully, better information. Without further ado, here's BJ Campbell. Alright, welcome to the show. Uh, so you write a blog called a hand-waving freakoutery. It should be linked in the show notes. And usually I don't like bio questions, but this one th seems particularly apt. So uh, what is hand-waving freakoutery, uh, and why did you start it? Well, um, the origins of the publication actually kind of go back to the gun discussion in 2018 in the United States gun policy. What I was... I found myself in a lot of Facebook arguments with people who are, I know, intelligent, but were being misled by um, statistical manipulation within the anti-gun media. And I kept having to, or I kept feeling obligated to step into these discussions and explain why the um, graphs they're referring to are wrong and how they're being fooled and that sort of thing. And these discussions tended to be long and they tended to keep happening over and over again. So what I decided to do was instead of copy and pasting walls of text that nobody's going to read anyway, I tried to find someplace I could host a, you know, I could kind of clean it up and turn it into an article and then just drop the link into the argument instead. So I fished around and I found medium.com and I cleaned up one of my 
one of my, you know, expose pieces on trying to do that and made it, you know, tuned it into an article format. And I was really only doing it just for my own use to save me some time typing. And then it went viral on Reddit. And I ended up with about a quarter million hits on it and I don't know, made five or six hundred dollars. So I was like, oh, nuts. I, I should write a second one. Right. So, um, so that turned into a series of five or six articles uh, specifically related to gun policy in the United States and specifically focused on the mathematics of it and the data and appropriate data representation and how media were um, screwing with people by representing data improperly and that sort of thing. Right. Um, and I tried to keep it clean of any culture war stuff. And I never even referenced the Second Amendment in the first five or six articles. I don't even know if I've ever even brought the Second Amendment up in any article I've ever written, which is a pretty impressive feat for somebody who's primarily a gun, uh, gun policy blogger. Right. That's where I've gotten out most of my traction is in the gun space. And um, along that uh, route, um, you know, I kept referring to the media's behavior regarding guns as hand-waving frigatory. And so I figured that'd be a fun name for the, for the piece. And then the way the, the publication pivoted was towards the end after we'd gone through, you know, however many articles explaining how there isn't actually a gun homicide epidemic and all this kind of thing, you know, a lot of, a lot of statistical analysis and a lot of graphs. You know, the, the question comes, well, why is, why is the media behaving this way? And why are people behaving this way? And then it pivoted over to more of a media criticism in general um, publication. And then also a publication that was seeking out answers to why the culture war is propagating like it was. Right. And um, in 2018, I feel like not a lot of people had realized how deep the culture war was. And there wasn't a whole lot of people that were focusing on it like there are now. Right. Mm. Um, and a lot of the analysis that, you know, I put together in my publication ended up mirroring what a lot of much more prominent thinkers are saying now. So that was interesting. And then so after that, we kind of pivoted more towards understanding how what culture wars even are, um, coming up with a language to describe them, and then looking at how... Uh, the technology of social media interacts with that and what the, you know, what that portends for the future, that kind of thing. So that's kind of where the, the publication sits right now. Um, and then occasionally we'll do some side stuff like, you know, a little piece here and there about abortion or, or environmentalism or things like that. But it's, um, it's mostly a cultural analysis publication that occasionally goes back to the well on guns. And then any of the actual hard copy publications that I've been in, you know, is usually goes back to gun related stuff. Like I've got a couple of articles in recall magazine and I've done some work for them and, uh, and that sort of thing. So, um, so I've got really, I've got readers from two kind of different groups. One group is the, the gun folks. And then the other group is sort of like the, I guess the cast offs from the, um, brief flash in a pan. That was the intellectual dark web. Those kids, <laughs> right. Or the, or the game B people, or, or those kind of things. So, so like that's, those folks are, you know, thinking about societal problems in new frameworks. So, and then, you know, you've got other people who are, you know, like the fact that you can put together a mathematical framework to explain why you're a, you know, gun prepper. Right. So that's, that's kind of where 
where my uh, readers come from. Yeah, I feel like you may have turned off uh, like two thirds of the audience, but the one third that's left is really, really excited. But uh, <laughs> let's try to catch everyone's interest again um, with this very specific metaphor that you use when thinking about the culture war, uh, and that is the egregore. So first, what is what is the egregore in kind of lore? And then what is the egregore when applied to when applied to kind of real life or applied to um, social analysis? I think there's kind of three layers instead of two. Um, the egregores from an occult, they're kind of an occult term and originally, as I understand it. And the idea is um, you get a bunch of cultists together and they're all thinking the same thing and they're all doing the same thing. What they do is they effectively invoke um a demon a spirit of some kind that then becomes manifest simply by their actions and then it would you know um influence them control them dominate them so it's like a a way to you know um you know it has to do with with occult practices right um and it's kind of the next layer up is and there's a lot of people that are throwing around this term and they have kind of different definitions for it and the broader modern definition for it is just a, um, you know, a a way to encapsulate the actions of groups and group behavior, and um, everybody ten- believes X Y Z, and so then it becomes manifest. And that is, I think, more prominent nowadays in the internet space because, you know, in the meta or whatever we want to call it, um, you know, postmodernism works. It's real. You know, like reality is a social construct in there. It may not be out, you know, in the actual real world, but if people spend their entire life on the internet, then anything they socially construct can become manifest. And then you have that definition of the egregore. And then the um, extremely narrow definition that I like toying with um, that I'd like to start trying to do some analysis on and, and, and like some rigorous kind of maybe ghetto science on is is this um what we have right now in social media is we have a system where everybody's brains are wired together um and what you do on all of your social media platforms as you're doom scrolling through spending your day you're looking at content and then you are choosing or to amplify or not amplify that content you like it or you share it you share is a big amplify a like is a smaller amplified that then allows the, you know, the algorithms to decide whether it, they want to share it. And um, then that, and that content can be anything from a picture of a cat to, you know, um, a communist manifesto, right? You know, it can be small things or big things or things in the middle, videos, whatever. This is exactly the same procedure that a neuron undergoes in a brain. So a neuron has uh, a nucleus, and it has or has a cell body, and off of it is has dendrites, which are small little sticks of cell material that collect signals from other uh, neurons. The combination of those signals goes into the axon. There's some generator function inside the axon that nobody's really sure how it works, but it can tune itself and adjust over time. And then it decides whether or not to fire down the axon to the dendrites of other neurons. And then this procedure happens in that neuron and the next neuron and the next neuron. And they're all tied together in a web. When computer scientists build artificial neural networks, they're 
basically building a small virtual model of these things. So in a uh, in an ANN, a you know artificial neural network, you'll have a box. Um, inside the box is some generator function, which usually just kind of runs between zero and one, and you feed it X number of inputs, and then it processes those through a mathematical equation, and it sends out an output. And what you do in ANNs is you build a network of these, that they're all virtual, they live in the computer, and each the answer of each box feeds the next box and such, and you'll have rows of them that are connected in some way, and you'll do something like input 100 years worth of college football scores into one side of it, and then you, you have it, um, or you, you input one college set of college football statistics in one side of it and have it spit out a score, and the score is wrong, right? But each of these little equations has a knob where you can turn you know, a variable inside of it or multiple variables that you can adjust inside each box and see so it turn all the boxes a little bit, and you try it again, and if it gets closer, then you keep turning the knobs and you're kind of like playing Marco Polo with your answer, right? And once you get it tuned to one score, then you're like, all right, great. Now that you stick in, you know, some other historical score game and then you see if it gets it right and it gets it wrong. So you tune the knobs some more and then you run both scores until it can get both of them mostly right. And then because computers think fast, you give it a hundred years worth of college football data and you tell it to sit there for a week and auto tune the knobs until it, most closely approximates the answer. And then you have taught your computer to predict football. Um, that's how an ANN works. But what we have in social media is we have a effectively an ANN where instead of passing numbers, we're passing thoughts. Um, and then they are being processed and passed through. And the thoughts can be very complicated and um, over the past five to ten years, um, the rise of the image meme has allowed complicated thoughts to be compressed. Those work like thought compression. So if you have, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. There was a great libertarian meme a while ago. It had a picture of a road. You know, it's a dead cat on the side of the road. And there was a um, paint stripe that went down the road. And it painted over the cat, and it continued going. And the caption was, without government, who would paint the dead cats? Okay. Now, what that is, is a tremendous amount of information compression, because there is an entire argument between the authoritarians and libertarians about without government, who would build the roads. And that entire argument is distilled down there with, and yet, the government is also doing these things like painting cats. Right. So that whole thing, which is, you know, it's five days worth of arguing on Reddit is distilled into an image that can be easily processed in a few seconds and then shared. And it goes viral and it travels down the, the meme ways. Right. So what we have now is we have a system where it is we literally have an artificial neural network um, of thought. Now, the. The, the thing to step sideways here is, well, if you get into ANN science and artificial intelligence science, there's some disagreement within the people who do that kind of stuff about whether or not any of these things can ever become truly intelligent. 
and you have Turing tests and you have all this philosophical argument and this, that, and the other. But you know, basically have two camps. Some of them say it'll never happen. The others say if it you ever generate an ANN that's complex enough, it will become sentient. Well, if that second group is true, then the ANN that is social media must at some point become sentient as if it reaches a level of complexity. It's doomed to happen. It's destined to happen sooner or later. And then the question is, has it already happened? Because we wouldn't know. Because we are just cells in its brain. And there's no way for it to be able to... Um, there's no way for it to talk to us. There's no way for us to talk to it. It lives at a next level up. So then the question is, is this thing, does it, you know, is this real? Um, I don't know. I don't think that anybody could say for sure, but not yet anyway, but they're uh, tooling around with Patrick Ryan and some other folks that are associated with my blog and we're scratching our heads trying to figure out if there's a way to test it. So that would be the third definition, kind of the, you know, the, the third layer of egregore speak when i talk about meme space egregore is my publication i'm talking about almost specifically that concept the idea that the kurzweil singularity has already happened and it lives in social media and uses our brain as a substrate and in that case you have um it's it becomes much different than just general eric hoffer bob mentality right it's something that's uh much more reactive and much more capable of evolution on a faster scale than an ordinary mob. So you might have accidentally run into the one podcast where you'll actually get very, very specific pushback on this because, I mean, two episodes ago, I talked with Rune. I talked uh, in fair amount of detail about uh, machine learning itself. And this is also my background as well. So Perfect. a yeah, lot of great. people, Tear it apart. yeah, a lot of people uh, in, in, who do machine learning would be very skeptical that uh, at least in their terms, that you can have any kind of network formed with this because one, there is no kind of explicit cost function and we can get to whether there's an implicit one uh, later on. And two, that there is just incredible um, incredible amounts of unspecificity, right? Essentially, you can have these, you can have these parameters that are being tuned, but they're not necessarily being uh, tuned in any kind of, uh, any kind of safe environment, any kind of kind of closed environment, they're incredibly prone to disruption by all sorts of other things. Uh, so th there's going to be like a lot of pushback on, especially using the kind of technical terms uh, there. But I do think it's actually very useful as a kind of metaphor. Uh, you see this in biology a lot, where of course you have a bunch of cells they uh, combine to make up an organism, and the organism has behaviors, and we might say that the organism. Uh, wants to do something when it's simply kind of responding to those types of stimuli. And you might also say that evolution itself wants to do something. It wants to make some group of organisms or some uh, specific genes uh, pass on into the future. And we could say evolution is doing X, even if, of course, evolution is not really a kind of sentient being. And there is where I most see this kind of value of thinking about this as a kind of information aggregator or as a kind of egregore, as you said. Does that seem right to you? Um, yeah, we could talk about it in those terms. I mean, I, I'm not convinced personally that, you know, this thing 
as I say, has any kind of like legitimate intelligence, or even if it does, I don't know how we would even describe it, right? I mean, like that's the problem with you know, we're talking about you know, if you want to jump over to the UFOs and alien species <laughs> and whatever else, like how would you know that they were intelligent if they you didn't have a shared language, if you didn't have you know, like I don't know, think about dogs and cats. We think dogs are more intelligent than cats, but cats are smarter at being a cat than a dog is. So you know, in some ways, our judge of intelligence is how close they are to thinking like us. And in that case, you know, if this thing is thinking in a very foreign way, then what did we even consider to be thinking? These are philosophical questions, right? Um, the, the, you know, at the, at the cultural analysis layer, I mean, I think that there's a very strong, I'm a, I'm a, uh, a, a strong believer in the concept of social Darwinism. And I think that culture war is the means by which social Darwinism happens. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I don't can, think can it's... Can we be a little bit specific on that? Because I think there's, sure. uh, there's a version of social Darwinism that I think is um, a little bit silly, which is the kind of like explicit, um, explicit uh, kind of genetic version. I think that that's like, that's just like empirically false. It's empirically false that you're kind of uh, doing these social procedures in order to prune off the actual genetics. But there's this parallel idea or this real strongly related idea of mimetics, right? Essentially that you have memes, you have ideas that can propagate themselves, that can mutate, that can change, and that eventually mm-hmm. are competing to uh, survive themselves. And I think that maybe is um, is more accurate. Like, which, What exactly do you mean by uh, social Darwinism? I do think there's some crosstalk between genetic Darwinism and, so, and uh, social Darwinism, but I'm mostly a meme Darwinist, right? I mean, one of the easiest ways to kind of disprove the idea that um, human behavior is largely genetic or not, I mean, in individual behavior, I think you can make a stronger case with twin studies and stuff like that. But for, um, you know, uh, societal behavior is, I think, obviously not very genetic. And the easiest example to me really is, you know, it's right here in North America. I mean, you go back 600 years and the Aztecs were sacrificing millions of people on the top of pyramids. And they, they, the Aztecs didn't go away. You know, it's just that they're, well. today they're, they're Catholic. They Well, no, I mean, like their, their genetics didn't go away, right? You know, now they're driving pickup trucks and re-roofing my house and playing soccer with me on the weekends, right? Um, You know, that's, that's you know, now it's, it, it, I, I, feel pretty strongly that if you trace the you know the you know genealogy back most of the folks in you know mexico and central america and that kind of thing you know can trace it more to aztecs than they can the spaniards um and so obviously they don't they don't have like you know human sacrifice propensities in their you know in in their their you know behavioral set so i think it's very you have a very strong case that um at a societal level people are enacting memes that we are mostly white space in our brains that gets infected by a meme. And then the meme is a, um, as a social organizational tool. And then right. culture I, th- I think wars it's kind of, are... it's kind of mixed, right? Because all of this just depends on what level of analysis you think is obvious or trivial, because we might okay. say, well, of course everyone is going to eat, but there, there's a reason why people are going to eat. And it's not necessarily because uh, people die off. Well, it's indirectly because people die off if they don't. But um, of course, you can you can still have someone who, by some uh, predicament, decides not to eat. But of course, we have these kind of 
uh, not even necessarily genetic, but kind of um, uh, kind of biological um, defaults to uh, to desire food, to have hunger, basically. And so you do have a strong layer of biology, and of course, there's a blurry la- line between uh, that and where you have a strong layer of um, obviously social effects. And mm-hmm. I think it's just depending on kind of where you shine the light uh, of saying oh, is more of humanity, say, biologically determined as opposed to uh, ideologically determined. But uh, the point stands that you do have this kind of mutating, changing process of competition of ideas. I think I would agree with you there. Yeah, no, I think that's the idea that, um, I mean, like, you know, every modern uh, society that exists today has some flavor of the golden rule baked into it. Right. And yes. the golden rule and every modern society that's successful has money baked into it. Right. I mean, money is completely made up concept. The idea that you can exchange, you know, uh, shekels for grain was invented by Hammurabi so that people didn't have to carry around big pots of grain to barter with. Right. Um, and that's a that's a consensual hallucination that we all buy and we all learn it when we're kids. We have to teach it to our kids and then their kids are going to teach it to their kids. It's a it's a meme. Right, um, but it's I don't think extremely that's successful one. True, though, because um, well, you can say like what is invented, what exists, but you have a kind of inference process, and whether you say that inference process where you take the past and you project it onto the future, whether that's imaginative, I think it's a bit stronger than that, because let's let's take gold for example. And of course, we don't necessarily do all our exchanges in gold. We can get to that later. Um, I didn't think this would be the podcast where I'm talking about the gold standard and such like that. But essentially, you had civilizations where this one commodity really rose to the top as a kind of currency. And really what this occurred by is it occurred by a kind of propagation from the past into the future, where you could observe that very frequently people would trade gold for things just because, well, they liked gold, not necessarily because there was some kind of uh, agreement that we all got together and said, this is our currency. But then you propagate that forward and you say, okay, we know that in the past, gold could be traded for many things. Maybe in the future, gold can also be traded for many things. And as it turns out, those people who thought that were correct, uh, and then this created more and more adoption until really all the societies in the world were running on what's called the gold standard. Well, not literally all of them, but most major ones. There was uh, a strong value almost explicitly in basing essentially notes that were representations of gold that were by law saying that the government would exchange for gold. Um, And also you had a strong value of gold in basically everywhere else. You could still exchange it for quite a lot of things, even if it wasn't, say, a quote-unquote currency. And of course, you had uh, various evolutions of government and laws passed that eventually changed that. But for a very long time, this was not something that we made up on the spot. This was not kind of some collusion thing. This was people taking their insights. And you could say, okay, yeah, these are insights about the social world, but taking insights that I think are real and then just propagating them. Well, I mean, I'll push back a little bit on that. I mean, gold, in my mind, is... It is. It was used for money because it was rare and it was easy to make coins out of, 
right? And yes, people did also use it for jewelry and stuff like that. But, um, and you know, jewelry has a social signaling, you know, effect that has value. But, you know, it's it is evident now that, um, you know, that's gold is just used because it was if there was something else that was you know, e- rare and easy to make coins out of them, they could have just as easily used that, and they did. And I mean, they're going all the way back. You know, you had, you know, prior to any kind of gold exchange, you had, um, you know, people using seashells as proxies. The important thing is that any society that used a barter proxy outcompeted a society that used barter. And so that's where your, so that's where your, your, you know, mimetic evolution thing comes in. Okay. So the meme that a barter proxy, uh, the the meme itself of a barter proxy is, um, is deeply ingrained to all societies. And when we pivoted away from gold standard, we still had the barter proxy meme, right? You can't pivot away from that, right? Otherwise things get a lot more difficult. You have to bring, you have to exchange four chickens to have your tire rotated or whatever. <laughs> um, so, so that's, that's an example of a meme that sticks. The golden rule is also an example of a meme that sticks. So like if you have, and you could go back, you know, uh, 2000, 3000 years, and you probably had hundreds or thousands of religions across the world. And now you've got, I don't know, four or five, and at least three of them trace the roots back to the same thing. And, um, and they, but they all have similar properties, right? And the reason you could say this is because God came down and gave them the correct instructions to run a society, or you could say that, well, you know, all the other versions that didn't have those properties failed in a in meme competition right so um the good memes outcompete the bad ones and they do that by you know different modes so um one of the ways they do it is by hijacking older memes this is like christianity spreading through europe by hijacking european paganism um sometimes they do it at sore point um and uh sometimes they do it by you know i think it's it's rare but um Sometimes they do it by, you know, presenting a better way to live and people pivot over to it or, or whatnot. But I think usually it's usually it's not through competition. Usually it's through some kind of war. And hmm. what happens with people is that um, the strongest memes that can infect somebody and infect their behavior, affect their behavior, are ones that cause that person to try and rub out a different meme like a a culture that doesn't participate in culture war will get beaten by a culture that does participate in culture war and therefore what happens when people fill their white space in their brains with culture is they want to argue about their culture being right and potentially pick up swords or guns because of it if the thing gets too unraveled right and that's kind of the that's the original connection back to the um to the gun stuff that I was writing, the prepper <laughs> stuff, right? So, you know, watching that culture war is very important to those kind of folks because they're worried about when it's going to go hot, right? And how would you know and what are the signs? And um, in order to understand whether it's going hot or not, you need to have a, you know, you need to have an analysis toolkit to be able to describe what's actually happening. And um, this egregore concept at the soft level kind of the level two level that you and I are shaking hands on disregarding the AI content um, is very useful toolkit to be able to watch like how many people are captured by 
a bundle of NPC thought and where is that bundle of NPC thought going and are there competing bundles? You know, I would argue that in the United States, there's definitely at least two, the Wokes and the Magas and um, maybe more uh, depending on how you want to slice it. But, um, you know, you know, folks in my sphere, you know, they're, they're watching it. They're like, all right, how many bullets do I need to buy today? You know, I think going through some of those case by case examples would actually be very great for this because right now we've established maybe a, a kind of high up, um, as my, as, uh, two guests ago would put it, uh, uh, a kind of, uh, infrastructure astronaut type approach where we've talked about all of these hypotheticals and these ideas and these kind of systems. And there's, uh, we haven't yet laid out a manifestation of them. So, so let's talk about how this works in practice. Um, you talked about the wokes and the magas. Uh, I, I would say that there is at least like three or four um, because you do have a kind of, I, I think you kind of have a center and even though my politics are more center, I still think that this is still a thing where you do ha- have a kind of um, not necessarily woke, uh, but maybe a more neoliberal or maybe a more technocratic uh, version as well. This is kind of the this is kind of the COVID stuff as well uh, of uh, something that seems like an egregore. Uh, I would agree science with you people. that the MAGA and the kind of cultural cultural left at this point is probably bigger than just woke. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I would agree that those are those are definitely egregores on their own as well. Yeah, I think that. Well, I mean, I think that what you had with COVID was, um, I mean, you had the 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 belief science folks were like, I mean, they were afraid, and so they latched on to um, an authority, and they entrusted the authority to rescue them from their fears. And you know, fear is a great control mechanism but like what i noticed um i mean i'm in atlanta i know people work at the cdc and i saw what was happening there is that like you know they were getting their marching orders socially not from the cdc they were not from science anyway they were getting it from the occupied democrats facebook page because that's (laughs) cdc is a very monolithically blue progressive organization because of the, you know, their recruitment tactics, people don't go there to make money. They go there so that somebody can carve their a sign on their gravestone that said that they saved someone's life one day. Right. You know, that's the kind of people that go to work there, which is nothing wrong. Right. I think there's a bias in, uh, government, government positions in general. I don't remember if there's a, yeah, I, I wrote, I referenced a few of these studies actually in a, in a previous article I wrote, there is a, stronger left-leaning bias in government institutions and uh this can be attributed to kind of their their hiring practices mainly well, they're that's... kind of like neo-racist hiring practices but yeah um i, I, I think that's true for all government but it is i'll tell you it is especially true for the cdc oh because of where it is it is especially true for the cdc because of where it is in town it's right right it's, it's tied in with emory university which is an extremely liberal university they were the I ones see. that had like, you know, that had a, um, in 2016, somebody wrote, um, they were writing, uh, writing like MAGA and Trump for president on, on the, on the sidewalks and chalk one night. And they shut the whole like university down for a day <laughs> because they were so traumatized. It was a big deal. It was like in the national news that Emory 
freaked out that much and they are deeply connected to the CDC. There's a pipeline there. And, um, you know, I've, I have some friends who are, uh, not necessarily in that group that are privy to internal, you know, CDC communications. And and they tell me some stories that are just, just egregious. You know, they have to hide the fact that they are either conservative or even just not particularly extremely liberal. They have to hide their views. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's bad. It's, it's very, you know, left-leaning, but you know, the, the thing that the important thing to take out of this though, is that even the folks that were, had, you know, access to the science were still pushing the panic and the science, you know, nowadays they're, you're finally seeing the sort of like generalized COVID egregore come around to the conclusion that, you know, COVID is primarily a disease of primarily a disease of old people and fat people and old fat people. Right. Um, and that, I think like actual scientists knew that from the beginning, but I think in the public consciousness, definitely there's a faction of the country that uh, that didn't realize this. Well, you know, yes and no. You got to also remember that the CDC, the the people at the CDC view their job as as a uh, um as behavioral manipulation, right? I mean, you could go back to like a great example of yeah, this that, that's is what like, public health means, right? That's right, public the, health that's means behavioral public manipulation health minus just kind of medical science means. Right, right. So like a, a good example for this is um, nicotine vaping, right? Um, people who vape nicotine can't get cancer from their vapes. And all the science saying that vapes are bad is like really tortured. It's really kind of twisted. Um, and if someone were to take a public health approach, a raw scientific public health approach, what they should be doing is they should be saying that vapes are... 95% safer than cigarettes. And this is what they do and what the European public health agencies do, right? But the CDC conflates the two. They call them both the same thing and they take huge ad buys to try and keep people from vaping. And the reason they do that is because they're afraid that there's a pipeline from vapors to smokers that does not show up in the data, does not show up in the science, but they do it anyway because they are they view their job as social manipulation. So they have a... Um, they have a mindset. Wait, so the regulators in Europe don't do this, and the regulators in the United States do do this. Correct, correct. Hmm, um, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't. Right. I, I mean, didn't know anything about this before. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, like you know, there's a lot of people that just still flat out that smoking rate in Europe is way higher than it is in the United States. Um, and the folks in Europe wish people would switch over to vapes because they're a lot safer. Um. But uh, in the United States, it's been this sort of, you know, there, there was a crusade against tobacco and that spilled over into a crusade against nicotine. One of the interesting things about nicotine, uh, another, another example of this is um, nicotine is one of the only proven ameliorative drugs for Parkinson's disease. It's about really? the only thing that you can treat Parkinson's disease with is nicotine. And the scientists who have found this out are like, they can't get through the wall of you know the the social wall to be able to present their papers at um at conferences and stuff because of the cdc and because of the the mindsets there um because it's such and it's like good god if somebody's you know dying of parkinson's disease who cares if they get lung cancer you know give them a pack of camels but um it but that's you know it, it's nonsense but they don't want to anybody to think that nicotine is good in any way because they're worried more about 
social manipulation, right? You know, um, so and, I, know. I think there's a there's a strange thing that happens here, and maybe we're gonna get get to this when we talk about the uh, egregore of the of the MAGA, or I guess maybe this is a fourth thing of the kind of reflexive contrarians, because. I think a lot of cases there are there are these statistical tools and tests that people use, and they're not always right. Um, they're they're kind of like leaky, but they're they're right more often than not. And it and there are a lot of kind of uh, quack cures and stuff like that that people push that are that are not necessarily kind of that that fail these kind of statistical tests, and that um, maybe if you do more experiments, there are some like fluvoxamine, you do more experiments, and it turns out, oh, this actually works. And and then there are others that you do more experiments, and it turns out, no, these don't work. And like you, you can give yourself that kind of cost-benefit analysis. You can say, all right, what is the expected benefit that I have from this? And say, okay, maybe we should we should be more bullish on these things because they might have a benefit, and there's partial evidence and maybe we shouldn't be, and that depends on your risk tolerance. But I don't know. I, I wouldn't attribute these things completely to, say, uh, behavioral manipulation. I think people can just be wrong in, the, in like, a very plausible case. Um, you mean, yeah, I mean, you know, but you, like, think about it. Like, this is, like, let's take, and I guess we can say the word ivermectin. It's cooled down enough to where nobody's going to get banned for saying it. Um, you know. Yeah, yeah, this is podcast land anyway. Yeah, so, so the... Uh, if you take, like, I want to let's imagine something happened at the CDC, right? Let's set the scene, okay? So somebody's at a sushi bar in Decatur, Georgia, and it's two people, and one of them is, uh, you know, the the kindest, most, uh, you know, um, forthright CDC researcher who, um, you know, only wants the good of the public, and they're sitting across the table from this evil big pharma rep who, like, you know, wants to make the most money ever, right? And they're both got this, they're both between them on the table beside their pokey bowls is a is a is a study that's top secret study that the cdc did some scientist and it said that ivermectin is 15 percent effective it's not great it's not bad and they've got this other secret study that says that the vaccines are actually 30 percent effective instead of 90 percent effective right okay let's pretend that this is a scene we're pretending Okay. The two things that those people that who are opposite people, okay, your evil pharma rep and your like super, you know, want to do the public good person, the two things they would agree on is to suppress ivermectin and promote and you know to to lie about ivermectin and to lie about um, vaccination, right? They would want to say vaccinations are ninety percent effective, and they would want to say ivermectin is zero. And the reason they would want to say that is because. If people believe that ivermectin works, then they won't get vaccinated. So there is a um, kind of a a layer of the Hippocratic Oath where mm, lying at the social level is justified. I don't know. I I don't really buy this because maybe I'm just getting like a very distorted picture or of, uh, or no, maybe maybe there's a special kind of incentive distortion at the cdc that makes them different from normal kind of medical scientists or normal doctors or normal even like epidemiologists. okay i mean epidemiologists they, they buy into a lot of kind of uh janky assumptions and i'm hopefully going to have philippe lemwen on the show to talk about that as well um but i just don't think that that's 
too plausible. I mean, the same the same kind of things or, happen okay, in the past in the United States. Like for instance, go um, a bit into detail about what I mean here. Okay, go a ahead. lie is thirty percent to ninety percent. Uh, if if we're being like very specific about what we're lying about, um, that can be disproven incredibly quickly. And I don't think if the the problem is like this is a hypothetical, right? So we can't really say sure. for sure. Um, but for example, like even we can run through the hypothetical, and I would say that it could be verified incredibly quickly that this is not actually the case. You can have an independent study. You can have the, these things happen and you'll have at least one kind of data set that it, where, where this is just obviously false. And it's actually pretty hard. Maybe it's possible to stop one of those data sets from coming out, but it's, let's face it, it's, it's quite hard to stop all of the data sets from coming out because it's just actually very hard to coordinate. You're going to have um, eventually one person who is a kind of defector, right? That's actually pretty likely, I think, that if they're conducting the study in the first place and they find these results and they're going to publish the results. And um, you have the system of confirmation, of uh, verification, of applying statistical methods, of actually controlling for various possible uh, factors in each of these studies that can actually get to the truth and can actually uh, resolve things if given enough time. I and don't. I, I'm, like I'm much more pessimistic lie, on you than not that. Gonna, that's not going to pass. I, I'm, I'm much more pessimistic on you than that. And and hmm. there's and I'll give you two examples. One of them is that um, one of them is lab leak hypothesis. I mean, anybody who brought up most of the scientists who were looking at this at the time kind of knew that this thing would probably came from a lab. And at this point. In my opinion, I mean, like right now, we know that Peter Dozik of EcoHealth, you know, uh, submitted a a grant proposal to DARPA in 2018 to add a spike protein to the S1, S2 cleavage site of an existing SARS coronavirus to see if it was more transmissible in humans, and to do that research at North University of North Carolina and the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and DARPA turned him down. He does he has a grant proposal out there to build COVID. And people still don't believe in the lab leak hypothesis. And for was it all of twenty, as well, or was it just the? I thought it was just the Redfield lab. No, it was. It was also at Wuhan. They were okay. supposed to do, but it doesn't matter because DARPA turned it down, right? Okay. But so it was not COVID was not developed under that DARPA grant because there, that DARPA grant didn't exist. But it stands to reason that EcoHealth then either turned around and shopped it straight to the Chinese or shopped it to some other, you know government black organization that hit it or the Chinese just stole the idea and just did it themselves. Right. You know, and then it leaked out that way. But during 2020, no scientist came on record saying that they, that it was, that the lab leak hypothesis was real because they were afraid they would be branded as racist. Okay. I, I don't think that's the reason. And, and that's, once again, this might be kind of my own personal uh, circle or my own bias. I can send you a link know. to MIT Technology Review that has quotes with scientists that said that they said that, but they didn't want to say it because it was racist. So, like, yeah. at least some okay. of them. Okay, I, I think that. there's at least like some people who who think that, but in general, like, I, I think that people just got it wrong because, as I said, there's these kind of fundamental assumptions that you have going into each field, and I mean, we talked about taking the past and projecting it onto the future. And I think that's just what happened here. And in this case, it's something that was wrong um, or not necessarily guaranteed to be wrong yet. We don't know that for sure, but at the very least, much less uh, certain than it was. I, I think I would definitely give you uh, that and say you're right on that because the hypothesis was essentially or the kind of mainstream hypothesis 
And I don't think I completely fault people for believing in this. I think people believed it to, as I said, a too high of a certainty, but I think there was certainly a time when we knew less where it was more likely that this was true, is that you just look at base rates. There are a lot of natural pandemics throughout history. And and so you can have like a high likelihood that there is a natural pandemic again. Uh, of course, uh, you can say that we haven't been doing uh, we haven't been doing any research on viruses for really all that long. And we certainly have not done it with the techni- techniques that we have now, um, including gain of function, which I think is the most controversial. But you can say you can still look at that. You can still look at the amount of pandemics that have uh, come from uh, a natural origin in the past, uh, and you can say like, okay, this is this is more likely than not. Now, do I think that uh, you should keep your mind open and you should not censor debate and you should look for further evidence and you should conduct a full investigation? I think that you should. But do I think that people were kind of malicious in believing this at the very beginning i i don't really think so and eventually you you had this play out you i do think you have a social process you have this kind of egregore where people want to uh, conform and be like quote-unquote politically correct i i think that that exists but i don't think you need some kind of like you you need some kind of like over specific explanation where people are 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 like intentionally lying to create that. I think that um, while a lot of people have assumptions, a lot of people have assumptions that um, aren't preferential to the lab leak hypothesis, and they kind of acted based on those assumptions. I I uh, I want to push back on you twice there. Okay, so one okay. Your, your your base rate thing kind of falls apart once you realize that the thing came out. You know. Uh, was discovered a mile away from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And yeah, the, I don't think that's, in, that's true right. in hindsight. I'm saying that like at the very beginning. Like, right. But like, you know, at the very beginning, you could say, all right, well, it came from a wet market was the original thing, right? And everybody who said, oh, well, these things come out of time and a wet market is a likely place for it to come from. Well, if you, you know, if you try and back figure how many wet markets are in the Pacific Rim, there's like thousands. And I mean, you could have a brand new pandemic that erupted every single year since the birth of Christ, and you'd still only get one that came out of the one down the street from Wuhan. So, like, the 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 base rate thing I don't think is a good argument at all once you start looking at the geographic specificity where the thing came from. Um, but if you made that case in 2020 to the anybody captured by the dominant egregore, they called you a racist. And... Like I and I know this because I tried to make this exact case to five or six people. One of which is a CDC employee who called me a racist. Like uh, this is, you know, I remembered the snapshot of what the argument looked like back then. And it's really um, funny too because I remember Matthew Iglesias had this tweet that was something like, "Yes, it is the racist belief that this wasn't due to uh, people being kind of like being like quote unquote dirty eating at a wet market with bats." <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, and so, like the you know, uh, so the the racist accusation doesn't even make sense on its face. But yeah, you know, the reason it caught was you know because. I mean, it, you got also remember it at the time. You know, a lot of people were really swept up in the 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 Trump anti Trump thing, right? It there became yeah, a point. Sure. Um, I mean, like my I I moved in October 2020. I moved out of Cobb County into Cherokee County in Georgia because Cobb County closed their schools, and they closed their schools. When you talk to the moms that were freaking out, closed their schools. It was almost specifically because Trump was president. 
who are like, I just don't trust the leadership. I'm okay with opening the schools if we have different national leadership was the kind of thing they were saying. Hmm, that's Yeah. And so that's, and that's the same, it's the same bunch of people who are saying lab leak is racist and the same bunch of people who are, you know, um, you know, the whole thing was, the whole thing was, it was a groupthink. It was one giant episode of groupthink. And most of the people, because it was groupthink on the left and scientists tend to lean left, it was groupthink that was more influential over the scientists. Yeah, I do think, I do think there is this kind of groupthink phenomenon going on. That's where I definitely agree with you. I would say that what's what might be a white pill is that eventually we kind of overturn this, right? And you can say that this was due to outsiders, this was due to something like drastic, which is a I forget what they stand for now, but it's something uh, about essentially researching lab leak and in- researching uh, these kinds of uh, these kinds of uh, through fairly rigorous, I think, scientific methods researching. Uh, lab leak hypothesis and those kind of clues and eventually you did get more mainstream adoption right you do you do get more of an open consideration and actually investigating this properly from uh, the kind of uh, scientific I don't even want to say scientific community I know a lot of people say that not many scientists say that other than basically ironically because scientists don't really agree with each other that much. They they agree on certain kind of axioms, of course, but they don't really, on a result like this, on a, kind of an endpoint result, on a thing that we're trying to reason to, that we're trying to actively investigate, usually there's not too much, invest, there's too, not too much absolute agreement. And I would agree with you that this is kind of a groupthink phenomenon, especially at the very early stages. There was a very strong groupthink phenomenon where people were basically just going along to get along and conforming with their social circle. And that if you have institutions like uh, partisan media, then that becomes much, much worse. And, and, you know, it's, it's worth mentioning that this is not a United States specific thing. This is international, you know, right. The Philippines were starving their people in lockdowns. China is still starving their people in lockdowns because they, you know, um, yeah, I think Zai is probably just scared to lose face. They're just doubling and tripling down on on the lockdown concept, and the lockdown concept was tremendously damaging. The food shortages we're going to experience this year are related to, and the inflation are related to the lockdowns. Economically speaking, you can't just stop the economic engine and then start it back up and expect that there's going to be no ramifications, right? I mean, like, yeah, I'm trying think, to have. Maybe this is just yet another kind of. Uh, solicitation, but I'm trying to get Ryan Peterson on, the CEO of Flexport, to talk about this as well. But the supply chain, definitely. like The implications of these kind of lockdowns, we're still not reckoning with that. We haven't reckoned with that. We can look at inflation. We can look at now uh, shortages of tons of things, semiconductors, baby formula, etc. Almost every facet of life going going up. Basically, for someone like me on the younger side, that it's unprecedented in my lifetime. People Anyone's didn't reckon with this. No, there's no nobody even considered this when they when they ran when the lockdowns which went from uh, three weeks to flatten the curve to lockdown to a cure. Um, hmm. like that was that scope creek of of, of the egregore of the 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 
the COVID thesis egregore was so dramatic and so tremendous that, and it was, and the people who were captured in it did not, they could not literally could not remember what they had said a month ago. Yes. yes right. This is that, that was, and that's one of the most important features about these egregores is what, what goes on, you know, in the modern flavor of them is, um, so it's like, like Google maps. So on you've, you know, I think probably read that article, but I'll outlay it for your, for your uh, listeners. Um, if I navigate somewhere in my car today, I, I use Google maps. I use it for every single place I go and I don't remember the road names because I, there's no need for me to, I've outsourced that portion of my brain to my phone. Right. And, um, I mean, I used to have road atlases. I used to have all this stuff. Now, I use Google Maps, and Google Maps has got a lot of utility. It's got two layers of utility. One is I don't have to remember road names, and I can figure out the most direct way to go. But the other one is it gives me traffic updates to let me know where the cops are. And if the roads change, it changes. So it has an update mechanic built into it. But, you know, we would be silly to say that mapping was the only thing that we're using our phones for. And we're in a state now where the more and more people outsource their thinking to their phones, other certain, you know, base things that humans are responsible for thinking about get outsourced to, such as morality. And when you outsource morality to your phone, where are you going to outsource it to? And what's going on within, I would say, both the woke and the MAGA egregores is they're outsourcing them both to, you know, Twitter and Gab, right? Um, and so they're just believing whatever their feed says. And so if your feed says to forget, you know, forget that there's 37 genders and instead map over to infinite genders, then that's what you do. And you forget that you ever used to be saying there were 37 genders, right? That kind of thing. Um, and the same thing happened with lockdowns. It was lockdown till well, lockdown to flatten the curve. And the point of flattening the curve was to make sure that the hospitals weren't overwhelmed. But as soon as the hospitals weren't overwhelmed and then the lockdown is supposed to come off, according to the argument three weeks ago, they completely forgot that argument. And they were like lockdown until a cure, lockdown until whatever, lockdown until, uh, you know, COVID goes away, which is never going to happen because you don't have the immunity yet. So whenever you come off the lockdown, COVID's going to come back and spread again. But there were a lot of people who believed that you could cure, you could completely eliminate COVID just through lockdowns and still do. And some of these people are really smart. You know, I mean, that's what Yishan Wong was saying on his Facebook page. And he's a smart guy. He used to be the CEO of Reddit. Um, but, you know, it's no, it's long as it, it, COVID's in the deer population in the United States. Somebody's going to end up catching it. If you don't have population level immunity, then it's going to spread again. Right. Um, so the lockdown was never a solution, but they believed it was. And you could make that argument to them because their phone told them that it was true. Right. So yeah, they're outsourcing sense making to the to the phone and the phone is basically a groupthink operator. Something that I'm not sure how to process is that there's this blurry line between motivated reasoning and outsourced thinking. And just having different priors. I think there was this very interesting uh, paper. I think this might have been an economics or game theory paper that was essentially saying that um, motivated reasoning is indistinguishable from uh, differences in axioms or something like that. Huh. I think this might be the case. Okay, so where... can you can you expand on that? 
Yeah, there's. I think what's happening is that there's a kind of path dependency where receiving ideas in a certain order leads you to process them in a way that in a way that biases you. And I think that this is key to how the aggregor, the uh, egregore functions, which is that you have some kind of implicit assumptions about, uh, or not even implicit, you can have explicit assumptions about the interaction of various processes, how COVID will interact with society, how COVID interacts with uh, existing mechanisms of say, uh, vaccines or of other uh, scientific products or drugs. And a lot of the most crucial axioms, a lot of the most crucial assumptions that you have about how those things interact, you gain intuitively. You don't necessarily gain them explicitly. And because of that, you can have this ghost assumption that you initially have and I've seen this in myself as well. You can have this ghost assumption that you take and that you use to build an opinion on a topic. And then eventually this ghost assumption moves from being a ghost assumption to something that is either explicitly confirmed or rejected. Like some, some something comes out, there's a paper that either proves or disproves it. Or not completely, of course, but that provides strong evidence that proves or disproves it in favor of proving or disproving it. Um, and then you move that ghost assumption away. So you're believing the new thing now. You're believing this thing that may, might have been the opposite of what you assumed before, but you didn't notice it and you didn't, there, there's kind of a lack of update here where you don't go back and you don't go and reflect on reflect on what this might have caused you to believe otherwise because it didn't you didn't draw that argument explicitly right and i think this is actually very key to how these egregores form is that they have they have a very they have a very strong cultural control of what exactly those assumptions are can you give me an example do you mean so like okay well, let me let me try let me COVID stuff. Let, let me let me try an example, like a very simple one. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so uh, vax anti-vax. Um, you have a person who gets they give their kids all their vaccines. They know that vaccine vaccination ended smallpox. Vaccine vaccination is works and is smart, and mm -hmm. is the thing smart people do. That's their beginning axiom. And so then, when the vaccine comes out, they believe it works, and then when the vaccination the, the new studies show that vaccination only really works like you know it only has a 30 percent efficacy to prevent infection versus omicron variant they're still standing by it right and um and you know vaccinating their kids even though you know the fatality rate and infection fatality rate for children for COVID is probably only about a third what it is for ordinary influenza they're still vaccinating their kids at age five or whatever. Um, and it's because of that original implicit ins, implicit assumption or implicit given. I can't remember the word that she used. But that, that that is what's informing their behavior despite the fact that, you know, further information has come that could potentially unravel that. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. So I think that that's, 
that's an interesting example because it's a kind of example where at, at least in my opinion you're you're getting to actually let's let's talk about like vaccine mandates instead maybe this is probably better because uh my kind of position i had had an article about this as well is basically like there's an over there, there's a dramatization there's a, as you say like a hand-waving free cowdery about uh about child covid cases but there's also a hand-waving free cowdery about vaccine side effects i think both yep. of those are overrated I and agree. um if you if you actually just compare the two like you're probably still benefiting your ch- your child like some small amount if if they get vaccinated uh but like i that that's the deal with vaccine mandates is that people just overrate how marginal this is and especially how marginal it is uh for that person to influence other people like in general especially if people are uh are as you said old or overweight or having other health conditions certainly uh this is this is beneficial to them but in general like the amount of the amount of economic damage and the amount of enforcement that you get that you have to invest into there's just no there's no kind of cost benefit analysis here there's no kind of understanding of saying like okay maybe we want maybe it would be better if these people uh, agreed to get vaccinated but what is the alternative here what is the thing that we're actually doing what is the the cost that we are imposing both on them but also upon ourselves and on our kind of public law enforcement and our on our public trust mm-hmm. and it's just it's it's just worse when you kind of come to making those actual uh, actual computations uh so i think that i think that yeah there's there's a thing here which is close to what i was talking about um i don't think it's it, it's the same kind of uh it's the same mechanism but it's very similar where people flatten things people flatten things into binaries and such and Hmm. Okay, I mean, this is bi- something bi- that I don't... thinking is hard, right? You know, that's not something that most people can do. Most people yes, can't think exactly, that way. They exactly. want to, you know, they want to know what's good, what's not good. Yeah, you know, I had a conversation. What set of rules get me into heaven or the secular version of the same? Oh right? yes, we're definitely going to gonna think, talk right? about the religious metaphors that are just everywhere in this conversation. But yeah, for sure, I think that there is a, a situation here where where people are people are dealing with um people are dealing with these things that they want uh to be binaries and they're not necessarily and even when there is just clear evidence of more nuance this actually best applies i think to the lab leak hypothesis even when there is an environment where there should be significantly more nuance introduced later they're not really capable of undoing this I think people don't, I, generally, psychologically speaking, people don't like admitting they were wrong. And yes. it's it takes a lot of maturity to admit you're wrong about something. It's a very difficult thing to do. A lot of adults just don't have this ability. They'll double down on something they're wrong about just because they don't have their, they don't, they don't lose face, right? Yeah. It, like, it's, it's like a highly China social the lockdown phenomenon. right now. Yeah, like, uh, and, Hugo and, Mercier has published... Uh, consistently about this he argues that confirmation bias should be cast as my side bias because it's not only about me being right it's about us being right uh, and the enforcement mechanisms are just all there yeah i mean um 
part of being in a as a part of being a, a in a social species is um you have to fit in to be able to be part of the community and so if the whole if if the community's wrong you can't it's difficult to be the person that stands out because you might get expunged from your community and you need to be able to work with your community to be able to you know uh hunt the woolly mammoth if we go back that far right you know um you might starve to death by not going along with the group you know from a sort of a uh evo psych perspective so um i mean that's that's probably hardwired behavior i think i think a lot of it is yeah i think i think culture works hardwired too i mean oh um, yes for sure you know I, i think that's absolutely hardwired because any any again we'll go evo psych for a little bit any cave tribe that was not prepared to culture war got rubbed out by a cave tribe that was prepared for culture war that's just kind of the game theory of the thing and so it stands to reason that brains wired for culture war are the ones that pass their genes down i don't know maybe this is ironically maybe this is part of this kind of tribal warfare thing but i I am a little bit uh skeptical of the kind of evo psych stuff uh the problem with evo psych is because of the replication yeah because of the replication crisis stuff but also because like you see it misused so much it's kind of like yeah, it's exactly in the it, it's exactly in the kind of medium where it has plenty of applications some of which are correct i'm sure that that there's a reasonable amount of uh there's a reasonable chance that uh that's correct but also that it's so kind of broad and miasmatic that you can't mm. really nail down you can't really say that we have a high degree of certainty but actually like now that i think about it you can you can just verify these things, right? And I feel like there there are well documented effects that are exactly this, like the Ash conformity test, um, as I said before, uh, Mercier's work on uh, confirmation bias, or what he calls my side bias, is excellent, right? So so you can just observe these things. They're just they're just true. They're they're things that are true about humans today. Right. Um, Evo psych works good when it is used to explain something that has been already independently proven, mm-hmm. um, and then. But once you start speculating about things using Evo Psych, then you you get into the then you get into the fuzzy stuff that's more head scratchy. Because one of the problems with Evo Psych is the same problem with evolution in general is that it's difficult to set up an experiment. In fact, yes. you know you can set up an experiment in for evolution and and you know sort of straight Darwinism, and you can show at least. Well, just check you know, back in two hundred years later. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, but like with Evo Psych, it's like with Evo Psych, it's like literally unethical to set up an experiment, right? And it's the problem oh, yeah, of modern psychology is is it you can't you can't do controlled experiments in it. I mean, yeah, there there's this question about how you should answer these nebulous topics, especially topics in social science, or I mean, at this point, there there is what's strange about the pandemic is that it's this strange overlap where you can account for maybe 20, 30, 40% of the the cost function of how you make decisions based on really rigorous scientific trials, randomized control trials, but you can't account for, uh, you, you can't account for the entire pie. And I think the desire for people to account for the entire pie with these tools leads them to, types of blind spots that can be incredibly destructive, especially when you have the state power of, say, China. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, you know, the the lockdown was global, right? I mean, every country did it, even countries that really didn't need to do it. Nobody in Africa ever needed to lockdown ever because they don't have the um the vulnerable population, right? Anybody who would would have died from COVID already died from malaria. And so they or starvation or things like that. They don't have the overweight I think population. That's a little they don't bit have of an old population. But the point that's, holds. I think the well, statistical okay. so, point holds. It, right, right, right. Um, when I say everyone, I, I would say at a statistically average level. Right. You know, they they don't. They're they're not disproportionately old. They're not disproportionately overweight. They um, have very common blood diseases, malaria in particular. That would knock off somebody who has uh, a susceptibility to blood diseases, and COVID is an airborne blood disease, right? So, all across Africa, their their death rates for COVID were very low, even yeah, when they were had good the testing. Part of, you know, mm-hmm, and I don't think the, I'm necessarily disagreeing with you in the kind of conclusion that we're drawing in the very end. But here's why I think the distinction matters: is that there is this social process where those extreme cases are amplified, where you have these deaths and they're sensationalized. You, you have this in children even here in, in the West. You have these deaths that are sensationalized, especially if it's kind of a very relatable demographic, right? And then you have these stories. You have this, <laughs> using your using your term again, this hand-waving free cowdery, converting anecdote into policy. Mm-hmm. And here is why, uh, here is why I think uh, an absolute level compared to a statistical level actually matters. And if you have a statistical level and an absolute level, the impact on what you have on policy shouldn't really be that large, right? If it's just a very, very minute percentage, but mm-hmm. the impact on the, on narrative can be gigantic. Right. And that's, so maybe we agree on, on the policy. And I think we do uh, in this case, at least, but on the kind of practicality on the politics of it, it's night and day. Yeah, it is. And that's, I mean, well, again, this is, remember that the publication started as a gun publication and the exact thing that you're describing goes transpires every time oh, yes. it's a mass shooting, <laughs> right? I mean, mass shootings are incredibly rare and astoundingly rare. Your chances of dying from a mass shooting are so minuscule that you could probably live, you know, tens of thousands of years and never bump into one. But um, the uh, but when they happen, they get, they're what gets the clicks. So that goes back to, um, you know, sort of the, the media analysis layer HWFO, which is really why the publication was named it and um, has to do with um, viral traffic and attention economy issues, right? So one of the, I, th- I personally believe that had COVID-19, the exact disease, happened in the 1980s, our response to it would have been incredibly different. And the reason why. Oh, yeah, totally. The reason why has to do with um, the media made a lot of money off of COVID fear. That's their job now is to push clicks. And so anything they can do to get outrage porn going or fear porn, and then they are able to harvest more of the attention economy to make more money that flows through our phones. So um, that's, that that's one of the that's one of the main drivers of the of the sense making crisis itself is that any kind of anything that is going to have an emotional impact on somebody gets elevated even though even if the data doesn't support it now that's not to say that that's never happened before i mean we had the satanic panic and we've had other kind of things like that before but again when those panics in, historically happened they were also being driven by the media 
Um, they're just yes, uh, the incentive. So. The incentives now are uh, much higher and much more related to generating virility, right? You know, I mean, we would have the same kind of social erosion. We have a tremendous amount of social erosion right now. If we went back in time to the 1980s and somebody invented a magic newspaper that every time you read an article, the article would spill into your neighbors' newspapers, and then the articles started to be tuned into whatever would cause that magic spilling function to take place, then we would have a similar level of social erosion back then. Right. Right. Yeah, there's this specific thing about virality or about this 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 sharing mechanism, this basically evolutionary mechanism, this egregore that mm-hmm. is that is very powerful. And, and I know, think that... what you said earlier, when when you're talking about updates, this is very important. I think this is something that I concentrated on in my article as well, is that essentially having this process which is anti-fragile, to use a term from Nassim Nicholas Taleb, which is resistant to attempts to to take it apart, to combat it, to reduce its power. This is something that's very important for uh, the, the growth of these processes. Because if you have, say, a static ideology, let's say classical liberalism, Sure. If you have a static ideology that has its precepts nailed down, that has a rational self-consistency, that has a way to be gamed, then individuals can game it. And eventually, if enough coordination and enough kind of uh, communication as we have now, then groups can share and combine strategies to beat it. And eventually, um, eventually this succeeds. And I think the same is true for essentially all institutions that don't have this kind of don't have this kind of feedback mechanism. That institutions that are static or evolve very slowly, they can very easily be taken advantage of. And the power that they wield can be wielded in favor of various uh, you can say ideologies, you can say egregores that are that are able to adapt that are able to create these incredibly fast cycles of adjusting to uh novel circumstances yeah the um i talked a little bit about this concept with jim rutt and um and that was a a strange conversation because he's a dyed-in-the-wool um staunch atheist and um Hmm. i'm kind of generally positive about religion in general i think religion is a generally good societal thing to get a whole bunch of people marching in this generally the same direction and as long as it's teaching good stuff it's it's a good impact but the problem with religion is that its update mechanic happens on the scale of hundreds of years right um and as the environment is uh rapidly changing in the last 50 years you know the population and technology and social environment um religion's fallen away we're run boiling into a kind of one of the first eras where being a religious is a you know is even accepted but not even that popular right um because religions can't keep up they don't have enough they don't have an update mechanic they can keep up with the times and what we've seen um as people have fallen off they're looking for a different kind of um they're looking for a different morality guide 
and uh, they have these phones, so pull their phone out, and then they latch on to whatever the morality feed is telling them, which is a you know, um, for different people, it's different things. For some folks, it's the it's the MAGA echo chamber. For some folks, it's the woke echo chamber, and it gets updates quickly, and then the prior operating system within that echo chamber gets memory hold. And they forget what they were saying was uh, core ethical, moral behavior two years ago, and now they're doing something different. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that to them, right? So there's, they've, you know, latched on to really become addicted to, you know, an updating morality feed. Um, the problem is from a social Darwinist, a meme Darwinist layer um the and I, good don't wanna, means... I don't want to like jump in with the, the kind of like quote-unquote language poisoning here but like okay. let's be practical here there are a lot of there are a lot of people who have assumptions about what that word means that i think is different from what social darwinism means that is different from okay. what you mean by social darwinism okay so All like right. so we can just we can just proceed with like mimetics or something like mimetic that, yeah right? so mimetic space. darwinism or mimetic evolution okay sure the, we'll use that term so um the problem with mimetic evolution is that historically your meme adjusts on the scale of either generations or at least decades or in some at some slow enough scale that you have a time to test to see whether or not the new meme is beneficial or harmful to society. And then if it's harmful, yes. it falls away and it gets beat out by another meme that's not harmful or is better for society. The problem with the velocity of change of these modern mimetic um these you know meme space egregores or whatever you want to call them is that they're updating so rapidly you don't get that test to see whether or not they're beneficial or harmful to society before they evolve into something else and then something else and then something else so that you know if we if we analogize that to genetic darwinism genetic evolution and we presume that the one of the primary functions of genetic evolution has to do with testing mutations to see if they're good or bad. Um, over a you know, hundred thousands of years timescale or longer. These things are not being tested, and if you have a bunch of mutations that aren't being tested, and they just produce more mutations, like that stops being evolution and it starts being cancer. Yeah, is it just that we've we've made everything an invasive species? Is that what this is? Um, no, I think it's, I think it's worse than that. I mean, because the, mm. even an invasive species has the ability, you know, invasive species outcompete the local ones. So they're, you know, genetically better, right? What we have is everything's just mutating all the time and, you know, and the mutation is infective. So you have, you know, it can jump from plant to plant. It's more like a disease and you don't know whether the disease is beneficial or harmful. It just spreads. And then it gets replaced by another one and then it spreads. And what, what wins in this economy of um, memetics is not what is best. What wins in this economy is what spreads the quickest. Does that make sense? And that's dangerous. Yes. I, I think there's also a very important human aspect here, right? And we can call these people influencers. We can call these people activists. We can call them celebrities. Um, 
but essentially there's something that happens with people as well when they get put into the system not not just changing their beliefs although of course that happens as well but really a kind of infusion with the ideology or infusion with the egregore i think that this can happen uh especially when someone's work or when someone's uh livelihood is tied up with with believing this kind of thing believing this extremely all-encompassing narrative i think there was this quote i forget who it's from at the moment but uh it's it's hard to convince a man uh it's hard to tell a man something that uh his job depends on him not knowing (laughs) yeah Yeah, I mean, well, if your job is to fit in, you don't want to know things that might make you not fit in. Right. And I, I actually here... had that discussion with a lady I was, I was dating briefly, <laughs> right, right as we called it off. I had that same discussion. I was like, look, if you hang around with me long enough, you're gonna, you, one of the two things is going to happen. Either you're going to... She was she was a pretty pretty deep down the woke rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And um, I was like, one of two things is going to happen if we date. One, either you're going to like get very frustrated with me that I'm not following the same ideo- ideological path that you're following, or you're going to start questioning your ideological path. And um, so one of those ends with you breaking up with me. The other one ends up with you being very awkward with your friends and maybe losing some of your friends. So like, this isn't going to work one way or another. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I told her that. It was weird. Mm, yeah, I think that... I don't know. Maybe you. I mean, I'm I'm not going to judge your decision. I think it's fine. But what are the ethics of kind of the the, the funny thing is there's this kind of conversation in the like old school religious sense, right? It, it, is it is what is the ethics of like uh, missionary dating essentially, like um, dating in hopes of dating someone who is not of your religion and hopefully. Uh, getting this person to to convert and eventually, uh, in in your view, see the lights. Um, right. How what what are the ethics of doing that in the kind of egregore space? I, I don't know. I mean, like you know, we could set the woke analogy aside and talk about like a militant atheist versus someone who's incredibly religious. They can either like you know p- draw a bright line in the relationship, or they can try and influence each other. And if they're trying to influence each other, then what happens is that one of the two is going to end up having to deal with the social consequences of it right and so if you you know is that true, um, though? i think so i don't know at well, least in the maybe that's true now but in in old school I, I i know at least two couples who are who are atheists religious split and they're mostly fine with it yeah i mean like you know that's that's fine but like you know that's also probably not a militant atheist versus a militant religious person i seriously doubt that i seriously doubt that the religious person in the relationship you know truly deeply believes that their spouse is going to go to hell and mm, that's very I, I right and i seriously doubt that the um that the the atheist in the relationship truly believes that their spouse is crazy right or whatever the atheist states or whatnot. I mean, like, I think that those people in those relationships probably have an understanding that both of them are approaching their, that question from a a point of uh, a standpoint of belief and they just choose to believe different things and that's fine. Right. You know, so you you can do that, but um, 
you know, the, the thing about, uh, I think having a religion formalized makes that kind of thing a lot easier. Cause it's like, well, you believe this and I believe that and we can have different beliefs. Um, one of the things that makes the, the, the woke egregore so powerful and, you know, viral is that they don't believe they're in a religion. They just believe that they're doing, you know, they're just, this is the rules for appropriate behavior. Right. And, you know, to you ask them, it's like, you know, is it woke? They're like, there's no such thing as woke. I'm just not an asshole. But that kind of right? is every religion, right? Sure. Right. You know, to a degree. Like, yeah. But it, but they don't. Well, no, that's not true. I mean, like, or I maybe don't, this is it, more of a statement about the every Christian says they're Christian. Every Christian says they're Christian. Every, you know, Muslim says they're Muslim. Woke people don't say they're woke. They don't even believe it's a thing. Or, okay, I, I think I misunderstood you. But, yeah, there is this kind of, like, new age, like, tribe, at least, like, proclaimed tribelessness. But I think, like, if you ask a Christian, like, what is the kind of objective moral way to live? Or it's the same thing with anyone of any religion. They're going to say they're going to say something close to um, basically their religion, right? Yeah, no, I agree. Like, if you I just ask someone, like, what is, like... you even regardless of your religion, and this is like a funny thing that happens, even regardless of your religion, if you are not the religion that you are, what is the best way to live? What does being a good person look like? What does being a good person look like? They're, they're going to say that it, it's something similar to how the, how their religion um, right. teaches them to be. Right, no, that's totally uh, that's totally true. But, you know, uh, what my point was that is that having it formalized and having it uh, branded allows folks to understand where the boundaries are. Oh, you know, yes, was, yes. Right, socially and, and, uh, and colloquially. They, they know, if you're a Christian and you know you're a Christian, you know when you're evangelizing Christianity and you know when you're not. Mm. Whereas somebody who's captured in the woke egregore does not realize when they're evangelizing wokeness because they think they're just talking about, you know, what behavior is good behavior, right? So that, and, and I think that that's one of the things that helps wokeness spread it's one of the main things that makes it strong um and i'm not i don't profess to be anti-woke necessarily um i think that it's more in, much more interesting to take your hands out of it step out of the culture or entirely and then just provide sort of an analysis of it and you know because there's going to be more things than just woke that come up they're going to have different uh they might have different core beliefs but i whatever comes up in the 21st century is gonna that starts to dominate the um the the moral landscape the marketplace of morality is going to end up having features that look like the features of wokeness and so describing those features and describing which ways make it anti-fragile i think is really important right you know yeah and um and this is what i was saying to paul vanderclay i mean he's a you know he's a christian podcaster i was like you know so the 21st century landscape of religion is going to be religions adopting at least some of the things that are making wokeness successful for in a inside the the social media organism and right yeah is the future of christianity like your facebook christian memes page well you know i think so i think that's the first step mm. they, they got to get they got to get a better meme game everybody's got to have a meme game nowadays i mean like politics has a meme game now but it didn't have a meme game before 2016 when the 4chaners all showed showed up and started memeing for trump right um so so you've got uh 
that's that's one thing that that you know they're going to have to have and not only that i mean you know once you get your meme game done then you have to figure out your update mechanic situation right and that's touchy what what in, exactly in a, that, makes them... that's touchy in a in a in a formalized religion because you've got a book oh yeah you can't go against a book right you know yes. the wokes don't have a book their book is just whatever is going on on tumblr today and I don't think this is just just like the the wokes as well. Oh no, this the is, MAGA yeah. MAGA is oh, yeah. whatever's in the next QAnon drop, right? Yeah, you know, or is... whatever. Like that's that the, the things that you know make those things work is the fact that there's an update feed, and that's why they're viral. Um, that's why they're they're robust and is why they're anti fragile. I used to think that wokeness was fragile because its core concepts didn't really work very well together. But now I see what all they have to do is push out an update once a core mechanic starts to unravel on them. Like what happened to Rachel Dolezal, right? I mean, she used to be, you could identify as black and then one day you couldn't, and then she got canceled and she didn't know why. I want to, um, I want to put a pin on this. I want to put a pin on this like fragility argument because I think Richard Hanania had a really good post on this as well, but I want to stop on the kind of, I, maybe this isn't really a disagreement, but a kind of different way of approaching it, of talking about this kind of update mechanism. Because here is where, this, this is kind of my writing, right? Is here is where you can really formalize some of the ideas of, uh, of, this, uh, of this aggregore, of how this aggregore functions. I'm not sure how you want to refer to this kind of way of thought, aggregore theory, uh, maybe. Sure. Um, but, uh, oh man, like a lot of the kind of antithesis people or like the anti-establishment people are going to pile on to me on this. But like, th this is something that I've been trying to do for a very long time is to convince uh, these people that network science actually has like a very, very big uh, contribution to make here. Because mm -hmm. this is actually how I kind of started out. This is like very, uh, this is very unfortunate, but I kind of started out as a kind of like, uh, as a kind of like never Trumper. Um, this is how I start, first started off involved in politics. And because I, I have a computer science background, and especially a graph theory background, um, mm -hmm. which is kind of the mathematics of this stuff. Um, I, I looked a lot into like the mainstream network science of how, how do you like these conspiracy theories actually function? How does social media work? And like the, the two biggest... <laughs> The two biggest results, which are like virality and I think criticality um, from network science are basically like, are basically like egregores and then like the current thing, which is really funny because all of the yeah. disinformation people hate the current thing meme, but it's like the most, it's like the most robust result in their, yeah. uh, in, in their, in their field. Um, but essentially uh, for the audience, the current thing meme is essentially this idea that a lot of people of a given political tribe or, or, or of the same egregore, they have like a current thing that they're all focusing on, um, which is uh, a combination of, I think, two results. Number one is um, number one is virality. This is this, this should be obvious to anyone who uh, looks at social media. This is kind of obvious if you just like look at the retweet button or like mm. look at the number of retweets. But you have this Pareto distribution. You have things that go viral and become the thing that entire communities are talking about for a very long time. And the other thing is this thing called network criticality, which is basically that you usually in these networks you ha usually have like a small group. Uh, of hyperactive people who are essentially stringing everything together. So in the kind of woke case, you might have, you might actually like wonder to yourself, why do the people who care about abortion, like if you've just never been to the United States before, it's just like, 
why do people who care about abortion also really care about giving everyone health care? Actually, those two are kind of related. Let's let's pick two up. Let's pick two other things. Ukraine. Why do the people who who like really care about like uh, gay marriage or that's like not the right culture war at this point? Why do people who really care about like um, uh, transgender people also really care about like socialism? That that doesn't really make any sense. Right. Um, but you have, turns out what happens in these social media networks is that you have uh, people who are hyperactive and those people who are hyperactive tend to be kind of like activists types who are posting about all these things. And uh, they're stringing together all of these different topics and they're bundling them together. And this forms like a, this forms like a network of these people who are bundling all of these things together. And then those bundles interact and so on and so forth. And if you, there's this kind of economic effect, I'm just coming up with this now, this is not necessarily directly related, but this actually reminds me of this economic effect where if you have like more competitors over the same thing, like you have a lot of fast food restaurants in the same place, this draws more people. I think the same thing is happening here um, with this empirical result where you have network criticality, where you have a lot of people who are really like talking about like the current thing. yeah, well, I mean, like, so you do have this update mechanism, and it's actually quite rigorous in the in the results. Right. I mean, like, all, all of media right now is maximizes towards that. It's it's as a common topic in the writer communities. You write an article, and then oh, yes. you hand it to the publication, and then the publication changes the title. <laughs> and the reason they change the title is because they have people who are sitting around who have figured out what is and isn't viral, and the title often has nothing to do with what's in the article, or it's just only marginally related. And what they're doing is they figure out a title to try and kite clicks that they can attach to the thing. Cause it's all about virility. Um, and then, you know, your influencers, your influencer nodes, um, be they, whoever they are, uh, are going to grab onto whatever's the most viral and push it. And, uh, within their echo chamber, within their connection group. So that's why you have, um, you know, uh, transgender in Ukraine bleeding together, right? And it's also why the antithesis egregore, who was like the the anti-vax folks, were initially like, are you sure there's not a reason that Russia could justify <laughs> the Ukraine invasion, right? Like they kind of went that direction. Some of them. Are, are you sure them. there aren't Nazi biolabs? <laughs> yeah, I sure aren't Nazi biolabs. Turns out they're definitely Nazis. I mean, like, you know, from an objective perspective, oh, yeah. like, like the, the, you know, um, I would not say, you know, when you do, when you dig into it, Ukraine is definitely not a Nazi country at all, but they are so. more, more permissive of Nazis than pretty much any other country in their region or possibly the world. Um, so, that there's more Nazis there than anywhere else. So if you're going to rank all of the countries by Nazis and Ukraine's still the top, it's still probably a very, very low ratio of Nazis. And there's a lot of people in Ukraine. I know, I know one guy who's, uh, you know, on his way out through Lviv right now. Um, he was in Kharkiv for a while. He's out, he's sneaking out with his family. Um, there's a lot of people who are aware of the Nazi issues in Ukraine and are very anti-Nazi and, very much do not like those Azov kids at all. Um, in fact, there, there, there's some, you know, uh, according to him, there's some speculation that some of the mass graves that Azov had exposed and were trying to blame on the Russians might have been folks that Azov folks killed. Oh, my. Um, you know, like, yeah, they I'm not up sure. a bunch of sympathizers. I'm not sure there would be, like, who knows, more just, like, know? numerically uh, Nazis in Ukraine than in, say, like, Germany. But maybe in terms of permissibility, that's right. 
Oh, um, I, I, I think I there really probably think are like, well, you know, by ratio, I think Ukraine probably has Germany beat because Germany is like hmm. the German government is really, really focused on making sure that Nazis just do not exist inside their boundaries. Right. Yeah. But like, you know, like hereditary loyalties, like I don't think I, I don't know. I, I don't know this for sure. Um, it's hard to say. I'm I mean, just a I, little skeptical of it, but. Yeah, I don't uh, know. You know I, I guess it could be believable. We, I don't, we I don't like think they're Nazis. But then, you know, the, it's the other thing, too. It's like, you know, um, if if the state of Georgia in the United States was invaded by Russia and mm-hmm. the, you know, army was half smashed and a whole bunch of people are all trying to get together their, you know, their resistance fighter movements. And I had to choose between one, Antifa and some Nazi organization in North Georgia and I'd probably choose the Nazis because they're probably better at doing that stuff. <laughs> right. So there's a, a really curious, you probably get your, get your podcast raked, but you know, technically in, in the middle of a war, there's a little bit of utility for, you know, those kind of beliefs. I, I don't think there's utility in the beliefs, but there's utility well, in like, just like the bodies, right? Like, having, right. Well, the, well, there's like utility you'd rather have like a bigger army than a smaller army and, and and maybe or like probably they have some shared interest in not being invaded by russia as well right well they have shared interest and also i mean like if you know you'd rather have someone who's ultra nationalist than ultra non-nationalist in that case right yeah I mean, especially like, nation- like uh, nationalism is a game theoretical positive thing during war that's one of the reasons why we have nationalism yeah, especially compared to like maybe some group that might be more sympathetic to Russia. That's not that that's uh, probably not your best. Or choice. who just or who you know? I wouldn't want to team up with anybody who's been burning an American flag. You know, they're not likely mm. to stick around in the foxhole with me. You know, right, right. So, so that's you know on the on the scale of nationalist first anti-nationalist. You know, during wartime, you want the nationalists. Um. So, you yeah, know. this this does kind of I, I think this is like a very positive lesson that Ukraine might have uh, taught us. I just went through reading uh, Yasha Monk's book. Um, oh, my goodness. And I'm blanking on the title right now. But he basically talks about this kind of um, really beneficial, beneficial type of uh, pop or patriotism or maybe even nationalism, as you see in uh, as you see in Ukraine, where. Um, you didn't have a kind of Afghanistan situation, right? You didn't have a situation where the where the leaders or the government uh, just fled. You have, and you can argue over how uh, how much of this is just a brave face and how much of this is pure dedication. But Zelensky is staying there. He is fighting, and the military is fighting. Like, and they're they're doing like much better of a job than we expected. So, like, I think maybe one of the narratives that kind of got put under here because of this kind of culture war thing is how much these types of old coordination mechanisms do really help. Yeah. I mean, like I, there's an interesting um, anecdote that um, Aaron shared on the HWFO Slack forum. She was talking about, because uh, she went over to Lviv and, and gave, gave a transmitted Ooh. a bunch of medical supplies and stuff like that. She snuck in from like Warsaw and like, set up a, a GoFundMe to buy a bunch of medical supplies, flew them over to Warsaw, came into Lviv, had a connection there, stayed in Lviv for three or four days during the first two or three weeks of the war and then snug back out. And um, one of the stories that she told was about, um, you know, just the, the ordinary people, 
right? There's the ordinary people are very nationalist in, in Ukraine or like which ones weren't nationalist are nationalist now. That's one yes. great way to get become more nationalist to have somebody invade your country. So this, the story was this, it was like there's these two Russian tanks. There's yeah. There's two Russian tanks that go into this town. The story was told to her by the, um, by the priest there in Lviv. And one of the tanks runs out of gas because Russia, right? So then everybody from the one tank climbs into the other tank and they all going to drive off and try and get gas. And so they drove out of the town and they asked some farmer on the edge of town where did, where the gas station is or whatever. And the farmer points in the wrong direction. And so then the, the town's got this empty Russian tank that has no fuel in it. And they're like, what do we do with this? And so what they did is, you know, cause the Ukrainian army and the Russian army all use the same gear. They painted over the Z and they hung out like a Ukrainian flag on the tank and painted it up to look like a Ukrainian tank. And then when the first Russian tank finally came back to town, they saw the Ukrainian tank from a distance and they blew it up and killed their own tank. <laughs> um, so like, there's a lot of people, you know, on the, on the ground in Ukraine that are like, you know, it's not just the army doing well. It's, it's the farmers with the tractors and it's all the other stuff. It's, it's a nationalist unit. And, you know, this is the problem with, I mean, I was raised a Quaker and we were conscientious objectors to war and I am still a conscientious objector to war, but a lot of my family are army military brass. So like my extended family, not that, you know, like my little, my, you know, my brother, my parents were Quakers and everybody else was like collecting a large Pentagon paycheck. And, you know, what I struggle with is, you know, how are you going to end war? The problem with war is that it's Nash equilibrium. It's like if you're a pacifist country and you're next door to a warmongering country, the pacifist country goes away and becomes part of the warmongering country. Right? So war is necessary as long as there's a such thing as a nation state. And just for math, you can't get around it. Or at least the you know, the you have to make you have to at the very minimum prepare for war. And part of preparing for war is to have at least enough nationalism in your country to be able to operate an army that can defend your country. So right. um, the modern progressive, um, you know, the anti-nationalist mindset of a lot of modern liberals fails, mathematically speaking. And that yeah, sucks and it's a, for a conscientious objector to say, right? Like, I object to war categorically but the math just sucks, right? Yeah, and I like how you changed that to liberal later on because I don't think, and even though I'd probably say I'm liberal or center-left, I do think there is a very strong belief that there is no value in nationalism, that there is right. no value in uh, group. Uh, group. Um, and of course, some of the heterodox people will uh, will have some disdain for this as well. But I think there is some value in group identity and the kind of classical liberal assertion that there isn't, I, I think is just false. Because, right. I, mean, I mean, just look at our ability to really do things. I mean, the libertarians kind of win this one when it's like a question of like space because Elon's doing this now. But like, you're not always going to have an Elon, right? Like who is, who is like uh, Belgium's Elon, right? Who Who is like, mm -hmm. um, and... Yeah, you, you are going to have occasionally some genius and you don't want to stop that genius and you want that genius to be able to like um, get money through the market. Um, 
but also having some kind of group group mechanism group identity even that allows us to do something like the space program that allows us to do something like um like really put together a kind of uh railway network highway network as we did um I think there has to be some kind of coordination mechanism on that. And maybe the egregore is, is is going to have some types of benefits. Yeah, well... Do you think there um, are? You know, it's from a... Again, from a... If we're going to play the nation-state game, you got to have nationalism because it's what makes the nation-state game work. Um, And if you don't play the nation-state game and then somebody else decides to play the nation-state game, then they're going to beat you unless you also... Right, but even if you didn't have that situation, right, even if we somehow could guarantee that we wouldn't have war, would we still have a big upside in just facing kind of natural challenges? Natural challenges of coordination. I think what's happening here is that a lot of what's important we've kind of unlearned. A lot of what's important about coordination and about orientations of countries, of societies, and of localities uh, has been forgotten. And what's very unfortunate for someone like me is that you have to rely on a kind of religious metaphor to uncover this. You have to rely on some kind of narrative because it, it is some kind of either unmeasurable or um, un, unmeasurable in general or unmeasurable with the tools we have kind of mechanism here. We don't really know. We can't really say like what is a randomized control trial of getting a country of 300 million people to work together. We don't have we don't have that many shots at this thing. <laughs> okay, you there? Yep. All right, yeah. I don't know what happened. That's the first time I've ever seen my laptop blue screen. It's a relatively new laptop too. I have no idea what happened. Oh, I see. Okay, because I I was just confused, so I went on a I went on a, a, a text monologue, and, and then uh, <laughs> right, and then I had no response. Yeah. <laughs> that well, if you did a monologue to fill the gap, then then we can plug back in later, and I'll just I don't. We're, we're going to edit this out no matter what. Don't worry. Yeah, no, no 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 worries, but yeah, that was weird. I've never had that happen before, and uh, anyway, beautiful. All right, so uh, how do you want to restart? Awesome. Um, Why don't you 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 talk 
So you tack something onto your to your uh, monologue, and then I'll respond to that and we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. The trouble that we run into, I think, is that reasoning about these things, reasoning about how we use nationalism to accomplish things, how we use these kind of coronation mechanisms, or what good is to come possibly from an egregore. The statistical methods that exist, even for the results that we do know about egregores or that we do know about other things, it just doesn't necessarily apply. And we might turn to, say, religious metaphor or to some kind of uh, traditional wisdom or basically just to our intuitions and our reason and our and whatever we can advocate for, whatever narratives we can put together. And that's very tricky because those things can be wrong. And those things can be wrong uh, for reasons that we know ahead of time. And we don't really know how to work with that and how to act with act with a kind of trust that I think people need in order to have this group coordination mechanism in the first place. Yeah. Um, from a, uh, I mean, just kind of like from a, a, a religion layer. I mean, we were talking about war. The only way that you could get around war is war is a coordination problem, right? Yes. Um, in some ways, it's a lot like, uh, you know, over-harvesting the oceans. Like, if you get everybody to agree to not over-harvest the oceans, that's fine. But if one person decides they're going to over-harvest the oceans, someone like Japan decides they're going to kill the whales, I think it gives you a problem, right? You know. Um, and so, you, coordination problems have you know, can occur solved at two different layers you can either solve them through uh, an authority like the government or you can solve them societally right you know like uh, you had plenty of uh, small under the Dunbar limit settlements during you know uh, the United States expansion that didn't really have a government necessarily everybody just worked together and nobody murdered each other and if anybody did, then everyone else would know it. So you could coordinate that way. And then the, also the, what, the way these places coordinated was by all having the same religion, right? You know, everybody in that town is Lutheran. Everybody in that town is Baptist. So you have um, behavioral indoctrination layers that if everybody is indoctrinated with the same behavior, then you can coordinate that way so map that over to war you can't uh end war with an authority figure because there's no one world government and you probably don't want a one world government because you couldn't trust it um you could maybe end war by having the ufos come down and take over right um because they would be an authority figure that would be outside the realm of human narcissism. But <laughs> um, the other thing you could do, the only thing you could do, I think, is come up with a, a new viral religion that was built in such a way that it would piggyback on top of existing world religions without replacing them, like as a, like a install pack or something like that. And you could model it after um, woke virility dynamics. And if it was done properly, you could 
it would spread all over the world. You could end war that way, right? So that might be a way that like egregore mechanics could be beneficial, but you got to figure that out. And then the, the dangerous thing, um, always about building a religion is, or something like it, is uh, if there's any kind of hierarchy in it, it's going to turn into a sex cult one way or another. <laughs> so you got to make sure that you got to you got to avoid that. that, right? And you got to figure out a way to 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 get that out. And um, so you know these are these are dangerous toys to play with, right? Um, but I think that what's going to happen in the 21st century is as more people start understanding egregore dynamics as we're framing it more people are going to start messing with it and seeing where where it goes i mean you know to to a degree the advertising industry and edward bernays and all of that kind of stuff has been messing around with this stuff for a long time in terms of manipulating human behavior into you know creating desires for products that we didn't actually need so people can make money um but I think that the the new social media virility element to it is is I think it's relatively new, um, and I don't think they've got it figured out yet. Patrick Ryan disagrees with me. He thinks they've got it figured out. I don't think they got it figured out yet. I don't think anybody's got it figured out. Um, but I mean, could people who really figure it out well twist it into something that could be really positive for humanity? Maybe. Um, but who do you trust to do that? I don't even know if I trust myself. Yeah. So something that I've put forward and that I'm working on formalizing right now, um, this is actually the fire hose of bullshit part five right now. We're up to part two and I have like everything laid out and I'm just working on it slowly. Um, because I do want it to be very, very rigorous, uh, I loved part one and two, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> is that um, is is what I call a cactus's uh, cactus's limit theorem, which is basically okay. for every what I call self inducing uh, self inducing effect, basically something that can uh, wield power in order to accumulate uh, power uh, p- power based on people who are. Uh, people who are within within the network, uh, there is some uh, there is some degree of connectivity times population uh, such that this gains uh, influential power over the entire society. In other words, uh, for anything, basically every every kind of ideology has a trade off, which is how appealing are you to the outside and how good are you at using social power to um to manipulate the outs both the inside and the outside and uh the mechanism that we've had beforehand uh with dealing with these kind of groups with these kind of cults uh is essentially that they become pretty unconvincing pretty quickly i think mm-hmm. that the old school version of the wokes let's say in like i don't know like the 1500s and of course you had religious wars then but i think with wokeness in particular with it's kind of like it's it's kind of attempt to stigmatize the majority population like that's that that's not going to work in a situation where you just don't have high density of information 
And so the people who would have those kind of ideas or who would be most disposed to those ideas wouldn't be able to gather and therefore wouldn't have the social power in order to make that ability to wield power really count. I'm not sure that, um, I mean, like, I, I think a counterexample to what you're saying might be like Marxism. I mean, Marxism was obviously against the, the the native order of the day in a very severe way, but it spread very quickly and it spread very well. Was it and, obviously you know, was against to... the majority population? I'm I'm not sure. Oh, uh, yeah, like, okay. You can right. argue that it no, you're was. Right, you're right, you're right. Like it, in reality yeah. that it was, in right. hindsight that it was, but I don't think that was right. obvious. Um, right, no, I think you're you're correct. You're correct. I'll retract that. Yeah, but the main point is that as you have an increasing, essentially, Machiavellianism within an ideology, that um, its ability to succeed, and of course, I, I'm I'm uh, saying here that on the if efficient frontier of ideology. Oh man, I'm already being like very confusing here. Um, obviously, if you have an ideology that's more apt at using social power and more convincing. Uh, and within that convincing bundle, I say it's also closer to the truth. Let, let's say that that's part of the heuristic. I think that if that's the case, then it's going to be more effective either way, right? Because it's both better at using kind of social mechanisms and using or like using kind of social pressure. And it's also better at just either being accurate, some kind of like composition of being accurate and being uh, convincing. But if you have if you have a trade off between the two, once you get to um, once you get to the most efficient ideologies, you have a trade off between the two. Then uh, there is some point at the hyper connectivity level and the population level where uh, where that ideology that is better at wielding social pressure takes over. Yeah, um, I think that there's a couple of couple of thoughts on that. I mean, I think one. Uh, whether or not something in ideology works is has efficacy, societal level efficacy in the real world is becoming less important as yes, everybody tra translates over into the virtual world. Um, and the other thing is that um, you got to remember, I mean, as we discussed before, wokeness is kind of like it's, it's anchored around its ability to update itself. And so the idea that wokeness will eventually fail because it's attacking a majority it's going to have an update, right? And it's it's going to slowly update into where it's attacking a minority. That's it because that attacking minorities has always worked in human history. So it's going to figure out a minority to attack. Is that? And it and then you know that that's I mean that's that's the way they always work, right? You know. So um, I mean, I anticipate. Okay, I'm kind that. of skeptical of that too. I, I feel like they'll never. I mean. Maybe in terms of like a minority, in terms of like scapegoats, right? You can already say that they're kind of like attacking conservatives, and that's like maybe a slight mi minority, or like a minority in general. If you count like if you count independents as like not necessarily half of them being right leaning, um, but I I don't think they're gonna like stop being racist towards white and Asians for a long time, and maybe maybe this is a point of agreement that like it it's like a kind of uh, slow evolution, right? It, they they get tiny bit more towards being just like traditionally racist with each step, and in like twenty years, uh, in in twenty years, it's shifted the entire way. But I, I'm kind of dubious. I'm kind of dubious that it's actually going to change. There are some things that I think can can change, but I do think there is some kind of permanence to 
their most fundamental assumptions about the world. Um, yeah, I think I, I agree, but you also got to remember, I mean, it's, it's the woke prediction markets are difficult. If anybody could totally predict it, they'd, you know, they'd make a lot of money. Right. Um, but, the the generally speaking, I mean, like, uh, they, well, they're, the reason why I originally thought that wokeness was a temporary fad and was going to go away was because of the totem pole of, of, of oppression mechanics, right? So you um, use intersectionality. Can you elaborate on that for you, the audience? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, intersectionality is uh, begets a chart, the intersectional matrix of oppression, whereby everyone is categorized by different things, their religion, their skin color, their gender, their age, their whatever. And you assign people either a, in, either into the privileged bucket or the marginalized bucket. And then um, you can be double or triple or quadruple marginalized, or you can be incredibly privileged or whatnot. And then, so like that's supposedly, you know, it. so set that aside, that's supposedly just supposed to be an awareness piece. But then what they do on the ground level is that um, they reward uh, virtue and shame based on your location inside that matrix to be able to, try and overcome for either um, perceived systemic racism or to overcome for um, historical uh, effects of marginalization, right? So if you are a, uh, you know, black, lesbian, uh, female, you've got three boxes checked and you were awarded more virtue within the overall woke system than a cis white male, right? Um, and then, so then you create this totem pole where the people at the bottom are like, you know, they've got eight marginalization checks and the people at the top have none. And then you attack the one at the top, right? You know, so like. You, that, that's you very funny. That's a very funny way of visualizing it because I think intuitively right. you visualize it as exactly the opposite. The, the people you assign right. the well, demerits to are at the bottom. But <laughs> yeah, that's well, very funny. Well, you know, the idea is they're marginalized. Well, you roll the analogy a little bit further because it makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so you've got a totem pole of privilege, right? And the top of the privilege is the most privileged and the bottom of the privilege is the least privileged. And your goal is to um, reduce the privilege by chopping the top off the totem pole, right? Okay. So bang. Okay, we get rid of cis white men or we marginalize them or we we, we, yeah, we come up we with some way to punish them for their privilege. Them, yeah. Right, okay. So then this is the reason why I used to think it was going to fall apart and I don't believe this anymore. I've got an article saying that it's eventually going to erode and here's why, but I don't believe it, but I'm going to lay the argument out. Well, the problem is now you have a shorter totem pole, but you have cis white women at the top. So you got to chop them off. Right. And then who's left and then who's at the top. Uh, I don't know. Clearly like I think Jews it's gay men or now. Whatever, right. And you cut them off and or the Asians, right? The Asians are next. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're seeing some of this dynamic right now, like, you know, with the, the sort of anti-Asian stuff that the, that the wokes are rolling out. Um, and so for a while, I mean, like the problem is that eventually you've chopped all of the totem pole up. And then the theory is that once you've chopped it all up, then everybody's going to be the same level all down there at the bottom. And then everything's fair or everything's yeah and then the hispanic vote flips and you never win another election again (laughs) demographics is destiny but not the way you think (laughs) right um and you know but yeah okay so that theory was why i thought the whole thing was going to fall apart eventually their coalition gets smaller and smaller the shorter the totem pole gets 
but I don't necessarily believe that anymore. And the reason why is because they can update their ideology and they can do it very quickly and they'll update around anything they have a, that they perceive as a flaw. Now there are certain fundamentals to it. I don't know that they can get rid of intersectionality. Um, but, uh, you know, and then, you know, the fact that, you know, some of the intersectional theory doesn't match up with the, the evidence is going to cause them, you know, strain. Like for instance, um, you know, like let's grab the body of in, indoctrinated beliefs of, of wokeism from 2018. You had, um, you didn't earn that, you know, whatever money you made was because of your relative location on the privilege matrix and not necessarily by your effort. Um, they don't believe that the United States is a meritocracy at all. Um, they don't believe in, uh, uh, IQ genetics, right? Um, believe everybody's a blank slate. And then once you have all those beliefs in place and what you can do is you can say, well, you know, you didn't earn that. We have to take that from you, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you, you, well, it's principle of okay, explosion. Right. You believe in like a crazy conspiracy theory. You can you can deduce anything from that. So so once you have those beliefs in place, though, and then so then the theory is that your relative uh, your relative outcomes are based on your privilege. Well, the problem with that theory is that the relative outcomes in the country are not do not match up with the intersectionality matrix. Oh yeah, I see. Exactly. <laughs> right. Okay. The relative outcomes in the country are. Jews first, Asians second, whites third. Right. So, yeah, in order to. Level, women are doing better, at least in the most recent generation. Women are doing better than men, right? Depends. So. Depends on how you look at it, right? So, like, uh, I mean, I, yeah, I un unraveled the specifics of that with a multivariate analysis on HWFO Ooh. two months ago. Um, you might want to dig into that. There was a 2008. Um, study done by uh, the Obama Department of Labor that uh, teased out to the multivariate analysis on the 22 cents on the dollar wage gap. They controlled for um, profession choice. They controlled for whether you have kids or not. They controlled for whether or not you're taking care of an old person. They controlled for um, uh, uh, marriage, whether you're married or not. Once they controlled all of those, then um, the 22 cents on the dollar shrunk to about, I think it was, if I'm recalling, seven cents on the dollar. Um, the biggest one being, um, you know, choice of profession, because a lot of women choose professions that they can, you know, they can work with them as they raise kids. It all has to do about raising kids, right? Like culturally, women raise kids more than men do. And I'm a single father, widower, who's raising two elementary school kids. So like, I'm doing the what a lot of women are doing in the country right now. And it's not easy. I get it. I couldn't go into an office and work 50 hours a week. There's no way I could do it. Um, so like, that's, that's one of the main reasons for this wage gap thing. And then however much has to do with uh, gender discrimination is hidden inside that. I think it was four to six, 7%, something like that, but also personality types, lack of aggressive negotiation, um, yeah, there, there's another, you know, there's another there's, kind there's of, there's a lot of other stuff too, right? Of all, all of the James Damore stuff also lives inside that 7%, right? <laughs> you know? So, um, I mean, so at this like, point, I'm know, not sure because you can just group it by you. There's a Simpsons paradox. If you just group it by, uh, hours worked, if, if you just do group it by hours worked, you get a situation where, because a lot of 
uh, men work uh, more hours, but uh, women who work more hours, the average woman who works more hours uh, makes more um, than in terms of, I believe this was on salaried employees. Um, you get the Simpsons paradox, uh, which is actually the same thing that the anti-vaxxers do, right? Where they say like uh, people who are more vaccinated, people who are vaccinated are more likely to get COVID because a lot of old people are vaccinated. And even though old people right. who are vaccinated are less likely to get COVID than old people who aren't vaccinated because so many of them are old people who already have weak immune right. systems, it's biased towards that. And you get this, res- yep. you get this counterintuitive result. Uh, you, you get the same thing here where in each kind of hours worked demo, um, I'll, I'll see if I can link the thing uh, in the show notes. Uh, in each kind of hours worked demo, um, women uh, women make more in these salary jobs. Right, right. So, um, so like rolling back, you know, circling back into it, the, um, yeah. How is how is wokeness going to run into the, contradictions? So, so the contradiction there is that, um, you know, okay, so Jews are at the top, Asians are second, whites are third, and so what they should you know, what one thing they could do is they could go back and say, okay, maybe you did earn that. One thing they could do is they could say, well, there are connections between IQ and earnings. Um, and one thing they could do is they could say, well, you know, Jews and Asians in particular have tremendously different cultures that install different work ethics and that meritocracy is a thing. But if they, but what I'm seeing them do, oh, uh, I since I've been, going. what I'm seeing them do oh. instead is they're starting to reclassify Asians and Jews as privileged instead of marginalized on the intersectionality matrix so that their theory still works. Yeah, that is. Yeah. I mean, it, right. It, okay. I, I've so, long said so, that this is kind of like a, a, a sad mockery of blood libel or of kind of the protocols of the elders of Zion, that kind of stuff. There's a cabal yeah. keeping you down, but may, maybe right. it's going to turn from a sad mockery of it to just the original thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the the funny thing is once you just if you decide to just reverse engineer the whole thing so that the um, group identities who have the you just rank all of them by outcome and then call it call that your privilege or your marginalization, then all you're really doing is just having a, a racist layer on Marxism. Right. Then it just kind of boils down to classic Marxism, yeah. um, which is, you know, weird. But anyway, setting all that aside, um, that those were some of the reasons why I thought the thing was going to eventually unravel. And, you know, the, the wokes would eventually, they would end up just, you know, um, poisoning too many of their allies to be able to have a big tent coalition to be able to do anything. Right. Um, but on the flip side, wokeness has updates, right? So they could pivot instead of trying to do this kind of thing, they could just find a scapegoat and they could, for instance, just say, all right, what we're actually all about is just going after the cis white men. Fuck those guys. They're a minority. Right. They could do that. And, and that, so that might work for them. Um, or they could push out some other kind of update. I don't know. You know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to know. I mean, the, the, the only major, uh, like, you know, large scale prediction I made about wokeness that I went on record for was that they would abandon Latinx as a term. And it looked like that was starting to transpire for a while, but then the egregore stopped thinking about it. So I don't know whether or not they're going to come back to trying to abandon it or, um, they might after the midterms, if the, the Hispanic vote still starts to shift more red, then they might be start scratching their heads about why that happened. And there might be political pressures to abandon the term. Um, and then you're, they're going to have to, the sort of the, the general democratic, the general liberal uh, organism is going to have to decide whether or not really they're going to have to choose between the 
the Latinas or the transgenders. And um, then what do they do? Right. You know, um, that'll be weird to see. Um, I think that there's going to be some heavy discussions about that sometime December of this year um, after the midterm results are in. But who knows? Right. You know, it's hard to say. I'm not quite sure about that. I think if you just look at the history of the Democratic Party, specifically the the kind of post-Clinton Democratic Party, there's not a lot of reflection on why they lost. They're, they're just, well, that's they're, true. They're I just empirically isn't. And well, I mean, you know, say you... that this is due to esoteric things like, OK, they had a Russia narrative. OK, and this is the second one is actually legitimate. OK, the 2000 election was close. And the one after that, there was 9-11. But I don't know. It seems like there's always some reason. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, but to be, you know, fair to both sides, the Republicans aren't particularly good at self-reflection either. Oh, yeah. And yeah. when they have put together a, uh, you know, a. a, a when they've tried to put together a, a sensible look forward, looking at demographics and looking at this kind of thing, you know, what a lot of them have kind of latched onto is like, oh, wow, man, the Hispanics are culturally very Republican. You know, they play baseball and drive pickup trucks and work in construction and this and that and the other. Like, you know, we got to get these guys on our side, right? And then, like, you know, a lot of the Cuban immigrants are tr- naturally Republican anyway. Um, but then they, their attempt, you know, that was kind of their approach during Romney and they lost and then Trump came along and, you know, um, and they won. So I don't yeah, know. Yeah, post Romney, they, they thought, hmm, maybe we should do path to citizenship. <laughs> yeah, that, that was the, yeah, yeah, exactly. the quote unquote, the, uh, the, um, what did they call it again? The, uh, I don't remember. I don't remember. But, the but, you know, so yeah. they're not good at, yeah, they're, they're not good at, at, reflection either i don't guess and um yeah, these things are hard winning elections is hard sec- yeah you know somebody's got to do it <laughs> yeah. in the end it's kind of like you know who fails the least wins <laughs> yeah so it is a question i'm, I'm, of a, I'm a political nihilist i don't care i don't think it matters who wins any of these things anyway what personally i'm i'm kind of i'm kind of into the 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 yarvin side on that not all i'm not full yarvin but i'm enough yarvin to think that maybe even yarvin's got it wrong <laughs> um yeah i'm well, i'm working for the on audience a, what's the yarvin side on that uh so um curtis yarvin aka menchus aka menchus mulbug he's you know kind of the one of the thought leaders for the new alt-right or not alt-right maybe deep right is what he's calling it whatever the, the you know i thought they called guys. themselves new right that's the funny thing with these new terms right. they all mean this there's like every every like 20 years there's a, there's a new term that literally means exactly the same thing like on paper means the Wait, exact well yarvin same was thing. yarvin was saying that recently he was like yeah. i don't like new right i think it's a dumb term i'm gonna call it the deep right oh okay and i so i have coined the term deep right plants his flag on the hill right so um but you know he has a he has a perception that the true power in the united states is um in uh several layers it is the bureaucracy the universities the corporations and the military and that those all interact to create policy and that the politicians are basically just um dummy figureheads elect uh who are chosen through a reality tv show and their only actual job is to just take um take the fall when the 
actions of the true power centers fail. So he calls them the show, right? And then, you know, so democracy is a sham. The only reason you're doing it is to restore your illusion of choice every four years, et cetera. And then, of course, so then he goes off the deep end where, where I think he goes. I think that's probably relatively accurate. Um, I think where he goes off the off the rails, in my opinion, is it's sort of a therefore in order to have an appropriate government, we need to elect a, a monarch. Right. We need, you know, maybe democracy was a bad idea at the beginning. And I think that some of his um, some of his analysis is overlaps a lot with what kind of like the Antifa people say, like this, you know, our voices aren't heard. Democracy doesn't work. Everything's just fascists. Well, you know, that group that we kind of laid out there, the universities, the corporations, the military and the bureaucracy, and it kind of looks like fascists from their point of view. So I think that they're kind of saying the same thing. And they're also very frustrated that they don't have a voice. And my counter position to this that I'm, I've been trying to write this article for like six months and I can't just get it. I can't get it right in my head. Is it what this is describing is kind of a proto-fascist state to begin with. It's, you know, one of the elements of Mussolini style fascism um, was a very deep connection between business and uh, national interests. Right. The, and what we have right now is an extremely deep connection between big business and national interests that flows through the lobbying pipeline and the revolving door. And also that this kind of element has erupted in, I think, most of Western democracies where, you know, the person who gets elected turns money into votes and the money they get is from the corporations. And, you know, my uncle's a defense lobbyist. I know how all the dirty details about how that stuff works. It's pretty disgusting. And, um, my point to Yarvin would be, maybe that's the best system. I don't know that it's not the best system. seems like all of the all of the modern Western democracies are going towards this or all the big ones, the most competitive ones. It also looks a little bit like what China is running, deep connection between heavy industry and the, and a one party government and an oligarchy. You yeah, know, the, that, it, it, okay. it brings, it brings to light. Here's the, here's the thing. The greatest feature of democracy may not be that the people have a choice in their leaders. The greatest choice in democracy might be that the people think they have a choice in their leaders. Hmm. Because if so they the think they have a good. choice in their leaders, then they don't revolt. Revolutions are really messy and they destroy a lot of stuff and they kill a lot of people. It's a huge economic drag to have a re revolution. And if you can make sure that you're... Um, Make sure that you don't have a revolution and also make sure that the people, the oligarchy is just is scared enough of the people that they don't, you know, totally, you know, boot them into the ground. Then maybe the oligarchy just gives the people enough to make them happy and continues to do its thing and become be a productive economy. And then the rising tide rises all ships, even though the people down at the bottom don't actually have a say in what's going on. There's an argument to be made that while that is a very intellectually disgusting to people who've been raised to believe in democracy, that it might not be a bad system, conceptually speaking. And that's the article that I've been 
tooling around in my head. I'm going to call it in defense of proto-fascism. And it's going to lose me all of my subscribers. <laughs> yeah, this is... And I will have, and I will completely fail as a writer by writing it. But there's an argument to be made that that might actually be in that system. I don't know. There's this, there's this kind of like tendency on the right, I think, to call everything that is like statist, either fascist or communist. Basically, right. It's weird because it's kind of they've imbibed the propaganda. Of well, they call it all communists and the right kids all call it all fascist. With government, yeah. if the right wing is anything other than libertarian, then it's fascist. And and I don't think that's right. I think it's like conservative governance. But it it's like saying that UBI is is communism, right? Like like a Andrew Yang style UBI is communism. It's like no. Um, the the difference in degree matters here, right? The the, the fact that this is like one percent conservative uh, conservative policy that uses government is very different from being like one hundred percent government policy in the in this in this style. Or in this I mean, it, it flies in the face of facts. The closest thing we've had to UBI in the United States, to be honest, is the earned income tax credit, and that was a Republican yeah. idea, right? So, you know, I mean, it doesn't in the end. This stuff. So yeah, what I'm saying is don't call it in defense of proto-fascism. Just say like in in defense of like mild statism. Because that's really what you're defending. You're defending mild statism. No, I'm I'm talking about literally defending a uh, rule by oligarchy, rule by corporate oligarchy. And um, which is awful. Like, you know, in defense of you not having a vote is really what this this is talking about. Um, And uh, but see, there you, the problem. Here's the thing, and I've talked about this a couple of times in my publication: is that once people start to realize that their vote doesn't matter, that's when you start to get revolutions. So this, this, you know, at the very minimum, the facade has to stay up; otherwise, the system doesn't work. This is why the last couple of elections have been so dangerous because neither side has conceded the fact that they lost. Oh yeah, this is just right. And if that becomes the norm, we're on a short clock for this whole place cooks off. It's going to be bad. Yeah, I want to put a I can't pin become on the norm and get right back to it. But um, there is a thing about like the the Yarvin, the Curtis Yarvin ideology. Uh, I think he calls it the clear pill that I I do have a bit of a contention with, and I do want to actually I want to eventually litigate this with him. Uh, personally, because I'm not sure if I'm just making a misinterpretation. It might, it, it might be, but I think it, from my perception, which might be wrong, it greatly underestimates just the sheer amount of noise. He has this idea that, say, contributing to conservative politics is just beneficial to the dominant, the dominant regime, and I don't think this is the case. Like, I don't think, I, I don't think actually doing the abortion stuff, for example, and this is ruling out morality this is like not commenting on morality right now just like doing the abortion stuff is like objectively good for conservatism as a whole in the long term and it's it's not it's not actually beneficial to the it's not beneficial to the regime and they did it through engaging in conservative politics but i think what happens is he speaks in like generalities and contradictions in a way that makes it pretty difficult to pin these things down and interpret them so i'll just like i'll just leave it there because i don't think it's actually fully possible to litigate unless i actually have him on 
Um, yeah, no, I think that's true. It, when you do have them on, you're still going to have a hard time pinning them down on, <laughs> on clear terminology, right? You know, that's, that's kind of how he operates. It's, you know, he's an interesting person to pay attention to, and some of his ideas make me think. And some of the times, I think he's right about some stuff, right? You know, and which is, you know, the fact that he's interesting makes him uh, worth more paying more attention to than, you know, Ben Shapiro. But, um, you know, it is his ideas are at least, you know, generally unique and intriguing, but I don't think I, I'm not a, I'm not a fanboy of his necessarily. I do read it. I do read some of his stuff though. And some of it's, some of it's interesting stuff. Yeah. But on the kind of collapse idea, on the kind of collapse of, of uh, social trust, really not just trust in institutions, but trust in each other. I think that is a big deal. And I think that what we're seeing here is that it's, we used to say that I, I don't remember who said this. I think it was some conservatives that said uh, that that the nation is the largest group of people we can call us, or the country is the largest group of people we can call us, uh, or we can mm-hmm. call we. I think that was the quote. And now that doesn't seem to be the case. It might no. be the case that it's smaller. It might be the case that it's actually bigger because some of these are uh, international, but the role of that largest possible we seems to have fallen to the egregore. Well, I mean, you know, yes and no. Like, it could be that your that that his that politician, whoever he was, perceptions of things weren't uh, universal, right? I mean, like, I I hang out with you know, I've got a couple of friends who are black activists, and um, they might push back and say, well, there was never a we that involved us, right. And now, is that true? I don't know, but I believe that at least some of them believe that, and so that that perspective needs to be understood too, right? You know, um, it could be that like we're just now becoming more aware that there was never a we, or it could be that the we is falling apart, um, and or it could be that I think I'm litigating modern times we need the we more than we did before. You know what I mean? Um, Yeah, I think the point that I'm litigating is that the role of the ultimate unifier, whether it was fulfilled or not, was the nation, was this kind of central thing of politics. And and whatever you say about um, uh, black activism, they did politics and they, they kind of won or they kind of at least got, they got uh, concessions. They, they got advancement. And, and rightfully they, so. They, yeah, they won some. I would not say that they necessarily won. Yeah, that's fair. And sorry, I lost my... Okay, I, I got back on my train of thought. And the scary thing about the egregore is that it's a power attractor that does not settle things. That is kind of a power attractor that is even more powerful than, say or not necessarily more powerful objectively, like controlling the military or anything, but more powerful in terms of um, more being more alluring, being being the top thing that people go to now to, to settle things, is to try to settle things right. through their egregore. And when people in the same country are on different egregores, this is an extremely threatening thing. 
Right. I mean, it's that's stock culture war stuff, right? Mm, I mean, yes. a culture's job at at ch- culture's job at its root level is to rub out other cultures. Any culture that did not have the objective of rubbing out other cultures would have lost to a culture that did. In a but we've had these states kind of way. that have kind of settled them, right? They they in in a big way they kind of exist to stop religious wars, but. Mm-hmm. They don't seem well. They've still stopped any hot wars for sure, but I think they've um, they've gotten worse, or or maybe their opponents have gotten better. Maybe the Agrigors have gotten better. I think they have. Well, um, what's happened now is that them. all of all of this the the animus that would have fell out into violence instead is just being redirected into Twitter as like a containment <laughs> zone. And like, if you look at like sort of like the the level of political violence, we see political violence on TV, and we're like, oh my god, it's horrible. But that you look at base rates, right? Like yeah, the level of of it's nothing compared to the seventies, the nineteen seventies. And I I talked to like um, you know, my my father's wife before she died in twenty eighteen about this concept. Um, she was like, I was like, you, know, you lived through the seventies. You think it's worse now? She was like, absolutely, it's worse now. It's so much worse now. But if you look at the numbers, I mean, you know, the Weather Underground bombed like a thousand buildings in the seventies, and, and now it's like one person burns a police station down, and and it's huge. Like, we are very lucky as a country. There wasn't any mass shootings during any of the twenty twenty Floyd protests. Right. There was not a single one. And you had boogaloos out there with with rifles. You know, there was um, not, you know, and the only real major thing was just, you know, Rittenhouse. And that was just a, you know, that was a self-defense thing. It was like nobody got out there bullet hose protesters once. You know, that's great. I thought that that was going to happen. Yeah, I was I was really worried Mm -hmm. that the whole thing was going to go completely cook off. Do we know if there were attacks? It didn't happen. Did the FBI just do their job? We had 350 million guns in the country before 2020. And every single month of 2020 set a monthly record for gun purchases as soon as COVID hit. First, it was people wanted to defend their toilet paper hoard, <laughs> right? And then it was um, people are scared of the cops because of Floyd. And then people are scared of defund the police because of the riots. And then people are scared that Trump might win and people are scared that you know um i mean like how much rioting was there really like is this one of those like is this one i think there was quite a bit when i i went and looked at the the damages i classed the overall rioting of 2020 was somewhere between a category one and category two hurricane oh my god um so that's not insignificant right (laughs) there's quite a bit um it was you know the thing was just it was distributed nationally Okay, right. I didn't. So, I didn't actually know that. I thought it was yeah, one of those like quite a bit things, but there's maybe there's, not. there's quite there's quite a bit of property damage. But you know, um, we're pushing 400 million guns in the country, and most of the people who bought them in 2020 are new owners too, mm-hmm. right? And normally, when you have a gun spike, it's because a bunch you know it's a bunch of guys who own seven guns buying their eighth gun because they're afraid something's about to get banned. And this was different. Um, the the run on guns is so crazy that people are just buying any gun they can find not even necessarily the gun that they might need or want for their use and even given so we're pushing 400 million guns in the country right now probably close if not over that and none of the protests cooked off you know so i think that the idea that twitter is um social media is a containment zone for violence might be very legitimate because you know it, before you had that, if you wanted to 
engage in combat, you'd have to leave the door, right? Now you can do it from your couch. It's much easier. People are lazier, fatter, older. You know, a lazy, fat, old population is not a revolutionary population, <laughs> typically. You know, like like usually a lot of times you can you can predict. Um, a good indicator of when you're going to have a revolution is how many young, unmarried, unemployed men are in a country. And I was really worried about that with uh, COVID because unemployment skyrocketed, right? But, oh, yes. Um, and, you know, people are getting married later and that kind of thing. So that's one of the revolutionary indicators was there on the board. But instead, the, you know, the combat was contained. So it could be that this, you know, these egregore culture war things are um, in redirecting the war into the virtual space. They're making the meat space safer. Maybe. It's an interesting perspective to think about, right? You know. Yeah, I made the point before um, that um, cancel culture isn't so bad because beforehand, if you had this type of religious war, um, you would be dead or you'd be uh, in the gulags. Right. You'd have right. a much harsher punishment than being banned from Twitter. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Um, so it's like, you know, should people be banned from Twitter for what they think? You know, maybe not. Maybe, you know, they, that there's yeah, this isn't defending. There's that, an ar- but... there's an argument that it that all war is bad and that war in virtual spaces is bad by virtue of the fact that it's war. But the fact that it I, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't violent... want to conflate the two. I, I think that right. this is definitely preferable. This is like a categorical difference in terms of in terms of being less bad. Yeah. Right. No. I mean, you know, that's that's what it seems like to me, and it, it's. So a lot of people are, you know, taking a, you know, they're waving their hands and freaking out about the culture wars in in virtual spaces. But it could very well be that if we did not have that virtual space in which to stage our war, we would have staged it in a physical space already. Right. Um, So that's a it's something that's worth thinking about. You know, I mean, like the the most traffic I ever got on and on anything. It's been that article has got me on Rebel News in Canada and was retweeted by Thomas Massey and all this kind of stuff. Was um, the surprisingly solid mathematical case of the tinfoil hat gun prepper? <laughs> I mean, I don't know it, it if you've read funny, that one. Let, let's hear it. Let's um, hear it. it. Well, okay. So I'm not a not a writer by trade. I'm a stormwater hydrologist, and one of the things that I do is I map floodplains. So in order to map a floodplain, the first thing you need to know is how much water is flowing down a river. So you can do the hydraulics on it. And in order to determine the water, you got to pick a you pick a storm. It's like the 100-year storm. It's the worst storm to happen in 100 years, statistically speaking. You figure out how much rainfall that gives you. You convert that to runoff. There's a lot of math. And there's statistics that begin the math have to do with historical rainfall data. So you don't... Your bank won't give you a mortgage to buy a house in the floodplain on the flood map because it's got a 1% chance per year of flooding. Well, 1% chance is not that much, but over the 30-year term of the mortgage, you could do the math, you're a math guy. It's 1% chance of flooding is a 99% chance of not flooding. And then in order to determine the chance that it doesn't flood over 30 years, you have 0.99 times itself 39, you know, 30 times. 0.99 to the 30th power is, I don't know, like 0.72 or something like that, right? 
it's like a, I can't remember exactly what the numbers pull out a calculator and figure it out real quick. But then it's, you know, coming up on a, you know, over a 20% chance of flooding and then they don't want to give you your mortgage. Right. Or at least they make you buy flood insurance. So you can do the same kind of thing for a revolutionary war. Yeah. Since the average date of colonization, we've had two nationwide violent revolutions against the ruling government in the area of land we call the United States currently. One of them was a revolutionary war. The other one was a civil war. So you have two instances in 400 years. It's about 0.5% chance per year. And then if you map that over to the chance of experiencing a nationwide violent revolution in your lifetime, that's 0.995 to the 78th power, right? Which ends up being a higher chance that you're going to experience a revolution in your lifetime than your house will flood if you build it in the floodplain. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, so so the 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 people who are you know buying their AR-15s are worried about civil war. There's a mathematical case that you're, you might bump into one of these things. You got about a one in three chance of getting stuck in one at some point. And um, it seemed a lot to me like we were approaching that point going into 2020. And then when 2020 happened, I was just like, oh boy, get ready. Yeah, this is and the one question of those... is, did did social media save us from that? I don't know. <laughs> this is one of those cases where it is it is one of these tail risks, right? It's similar to existential risk in that in that it's incredibly multifactorial. I think there's a naive reading of this, which is just like, oh, you really think we're just as likely to be in, uh, and to be in a civil war as in like nineteen or like eighteen ten or something like that. Um, and I don't think that's the, that's the case. But um, it's not necessarily true. But if you go and look at comps, look at how many times other countries have gone through civil wars, violent revolutions yeah, inside yeah. that same time frame, and most of the rest of the countries of the world have done it more than us. The kind of critique of that critique is that. Is, even if the the things are more multifactorial, it becomes so complex that you have to have some kind of baseline, right? You have to have some kind of ba- mm-hmm. baseline to make guess. And I think right. that's where right. this really becomes critical because how do you deal with that tail risk? If you're someone like me who's reasonably high income, like right now I'm living in Canada, but for example, I'm planning to move back to the States quite soon. Um, it's not it, like the few hundred or even like thousand dollars to uh to get a gun is probably not a huge it's not a huge cost and in the event of this kind of tail event of course this depends on how what exactly you you peg the probability to be right or or let's say we have like shanghai style lockdowns how much food do i want to have uh stored and like you can say that's mm-hmm. also unlikely right but well um the, that small amount of food isn't going to cost me that much or like large even large amounts of food isn't going to cost me that much relatively so i think like there is a very reasonable way to approach this oh yeah that's i mean now you're thinking like a prepper and um because <laughs> that's that's how they think right now to to be fair there are some people who are preppers who are literally just coming up with a justification for their overall hoarding psychosis okay um <laughs> 
And, but then there are other people who are basically doing, all right, well, I'm going to prepare for these four things and it's very unlikely that they're going to happen, but if they do happen, I'm ready. Right. You know? Yeah. And, um, and, and they, that's, that's kind of what they do. And if it's part of your, part of overall lifestyle anyway, like, you know, I mean, if you hunt then you're going to have guns in the house anyway, maybe you just buy a different gun that has, you know, feeds the same caliber or something you hunt with, you know? And, and then maybe you're also probably got a big freezer full of deer meat also that's going to, and then what do you need to, you know, round your prep off? Well, you need, you know, probably solar panels and a battery, keep the deer meat frozen, you know? So there, there's, you know, that's the kind of thinking that, that goes along with that. But I mean, there's a, there's a reasonable mathematical case that a lot of these things could happen. And then what do you do? Um, I mean, you know, it seems like step one is like, don't live in a city to me. Because that's where things are going to get ugly. Folks out in the country don't don't, don't get a big. Deal. You're probably relatively safe in the country if you're in Ukraine right now. You know. I don't think that's necessary. Necessarily. I mean, true. like compared like, to living in the city, you know. I mean. If you're in, it compared to like Mariupol or something like that, yeah. Oh yeah. I, I think like, for example, like Lviv is pretty well defended, right? Well, like not necessarily defended, but like it's just far away from Russia. It's far uh, away from it. Yeah, they they had a couple of um. I think I think they got a, a couple of either uh, airstrikes or missile strikes on some of their industry there the past couple oh. of weeks. Hmm. Um, but uh, they haven't had any true presence there that I'm aware of. Um, and you know, Lviv is a Lviv is the transfer point to Warsaw, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of people moving through there right now, and and that kind of thing. It's a, you know, refugee transport zone. I guess but, you know, one, I don't know. one possible problem here, I think, and this might be wrong, but I feel like there is a kind of tail risk, intuitively at least. There's at least an intuitive tail risk of having a very, a population that's armed to the teeth. I think it's easier for a population that's armed to the teeth to to like really start a serious serious like physical war as opposed to one that is just going about with like sticks and stones. Um maybe maybe not. I think you can get a serious uh war with a very small amount of the population being armed. Like if you look at Syria at the peak of the Syrian civil war, the absolute, when it was the absolute worst and everybody's screaming about Aleppo and all that stuff. Um, I think it, it, 2% of the country were combatants and that includes combatants on all sides, including all different revolutionary groups and the army and ISIS. 2%. That's what it took to turn Syria into a, you know, shithole, Right. Yeah, two percent um, that is armed and willing, right? Yeah, two percent armed and willing, right? So, the fact that we have forty percent gun ownership in the United States does it is it significantly different than thirty percent? I don't think so. I think the so. Is the like, willing. No, I, because I, you know, once you, when, the question is how many people are willing. Yeah, it doesn't have to do with like you know, it's like uh, it's like stoichiometry, right? You know, if you've got uh baking soda and vinegar and you pour it into a cup and um it evaporates and all your baking soda boils off in the reaction and you pour more vinegar in the cup you're not going to get any more reaction you can only have as much reaction as the as the baking soda right so if um the baking soda is people willing to revolt and the vinegar is guns 
then pouring more vinegar into it doesn't make the revolt any worse. Yeah, right? the question is just a question is how many people are willing to do it. Like we're in a yeah. gun saturated area in the United States. Like there's and this is the same way where people talk about gun buybacks to reduce violence. It doesn't work. You end up I've done the math on that. You need to buy back something like eighty million dollars worth of guns to avert one homicide. And, and the idea that they're here. like that they're that they're like linearly correlated, I also th- think is just like very silly. Uh, it no, it yeah, seems to not. me like very just like an obvious truth that the people least likely to accept your gun buybacks um, are the same people who are, are at least like highly correlated with the people who are mm-hmm. do, using their guns to do like illicit things. Right. Right. The, the easy <laughs> way to describe that to somebody who doesn't want to di- dive into linear correlation in mathematics is to just say, look, any criminal in the United States right now can get 10 guns if they want. If you were to magically evaporate half the guns in the country, any criminal in the United States could get five guns if they want. Anyone need <laughs> one gun to commit a crime. Right. So uh, the idea that, I mean, if we if we already started with one percent of the guns we already have, then seizing the rest of them might be able to make an impact on crime. But you've got to seize so many um, that to get down to where under the saturation limit, under that stoichiometry equation. Right. Um, right. I, I that think you've... It's, it's thoroughly impractical. I mean, you, there's no way you could do it. So people just need to stop talking about it, right? And I think that nowadays, the because I pay a lot of attention to the gun policy argumentation space because this is how I got started. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, I think the left has pretty well abandoned that idea. Um, they're running it in a couple of small areas and a few municipalities just to get brownie points, but they've abandoned the idea yeah, that they wait can a get rid of the guns because because they, they know they know they can't. There's just too many of them. So we have to approach that in the United States from a different angle. We have to approach it by saying. Let's try and create a country where people don't want to do crime or let's try and manage our country in such a way that nobody wants to revolt. Right. It's very um, interesting because I don't remember when the last time it was the Democrats were talking about guns. Was it 2020? I think Biden did mention it a bit. I think um, Eric Adams talked about it. Eric Adams definitely talked about it, but that was just New York. 2018 was the big put the 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 egregore was focusing on guns in 2018 right really? but then um and then a little bit in 2019 there was a couple of mass shootings in 2019 where they 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 cooked it up but as soon as covid hit they they didn't talk about it at all and they started to realize i think some of them on the ground have realized that it's a losing issue for them because so many liberals bought guns in 2020 <laughs> And because like the the fastest growing gun organization in the country right now is is NAGA, N-A-A-G-A, the National African American Gun Association. And a majority of their members are women. Interesting. Yeah. So like the the idea that, you know, the the trope that guns are only owned by, you know, white male rednecks is uh, is out the window. Like that trope doesn't work anymore. So it doesn't play in there their echo chamber, their media echo chamber anymore. And gun ownership went up by something like 10% in 2020. What, like, I think it was like, I think it's five or 10%. So like somewhere between one out of 20 and one out of 10 gun owners in the United States bought their first gun that year. And most of them are liberals. So, um, you know, like, and then if you look at the state of law, over the court year or the state of, of public policy of 
pulling. Um, there are a few places where gun ownership is getting a little bit more restrictive. Those are the the blue silos, California, New York, maybe Oregon, I don't know. And everywhere else in the country is going constitutional carry, right? Like you don't even have to have a carry permit to carry concealed in a, a, a growing portion of the United States. Which is, you know, that's, remember when, um, when the Brady campaign first started, the Brady campaign's policy was they were going to try and ban handguns. That was their stated goal. And that was in the 1980s. And now, like, I'm not even sure that they have an objective that they think they can achieve. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, in a very real way, the the, you know, the gun culture war is like done. And a lot of it's just that some people don't realize it. So, um, you know, and that's what the funny thing about that is that, like the right doesn't realize it either. Because, <laughs> um, you know, like, okay, so like for this so with the abortion debate, I saw a lot of memes come out and they were like, oh, well, you know, guess what? I, I know exactly what's going to happen. This is just going to be the re- reason to for the Democrats to send me a bunch of spam about donating to their campaigns. Well, that's almost literally the entire function of the NRA is to send spam <laughs> to, to gun owners to convince them to pay money to the ARA, NRA, which then they just literally turn around and piss up the chain to get Republicans reelected. It's a Republican funding scheme. And, um, and a lot of gun owners really dislike the NRA. Like uh, there's a lot of, gun owners I've talked to they're just like when when like the state of New York went after the NRA they're just smiling and popping popcorn because they want the NRA to go away so some other organization can jump in and fill the gap that they like better right um so like you know that's it's a but what the NRA wants you to know is they want you to be scared of losing your rights so that you'll send them money and so they don't want to advertise the fact that guns basically won that culture war. And um, the Brady campaign doesn't want to let you know. They want you to think the war is active because all these organizations are uh, farming their money by conveying, uh, you know, a view that it hasn't been decided yet. And I think it pretty much has been outside of a couple of, you know, couple of states it it's much like uh it's much like abortion you know you've got a basically a national uh opinion on abortion that if you go look at the polls most americans the a plurality of americans are think that abortion should be legal up to 12 weeks and then it should be illegal except for health exceptions yeah it's mostly which is almost exactly what was almost exactly what every country in europe has too but then there's no state in the country that has that law. They hmm. either have the 24-week law, or yeah, there's like one or two that have 15. And then there's a bunch that have a 20 or 24, and then there's four that have a 40-week law, like a full-term law. And then there's a bunch that have trigger laws that are going to drop it to zero once Roe v. Wade gets overturned. So the fact that the general body of the United States wants the law to look like one thing and the states are running opposite directions from that midpoint you know it just has to do with the you know the power of lobbying and 
yeah, first past the post voting the system. Organized and, minority right. gets the, the organized minority gets what they want. Majority. Yep. 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 I think a point that you so, a point that you covered that I really want to dive into is that idea of creating a society where we don't want war, right? Or at the very least, we don't want physical war. Yeah. Um, and we talked about how the agricore maybe helps do that. But um, let's let's dive in more. How do we do it? How do we do it? I don't know. I mean, like uh, in some some ways, the the medium is the message, right? And the mediums we have for communication now all happen on the phone, right? I mean, people can't even like, it's considered a social faux pas to like, you know, for a man to walk up to a woman and ask her out now. You got to meet on a phone instead, you know. Um, And so all of our interactions are, are migrating into these spaces where, you know, um, egregious knockdown arguments can occur, but, you know, nobody... You, you can't punch your phone. It's too expensive. <laughs> so uh, it may already be happening just because of the, the 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 medium of communication that we've chose. And that may be egregore independent, right? So what I expect to maybe have to see happen as the next couple of decades unfolds is I think these egregores are going to become more rapidly updatable, they're going to become more connected, they're going to become, the information silos are going to become deeper. I think that the people in, who are captured by an egregore's view of the world is going to be more and more isolated from each other. Um, I think that's going to cause a lot of people to just believe that everyone outside of their echo chamber must be insane, because that's kind of the definition of insanity, right? Um, I mean, it's an interesting thought experiment. Like imagine you have a, a, a time machine and you go back to Aztec times. We we're talking about Aztecs earlier. And you see all these you know, sacrificing millions of people and cutting their organs out while they're still alive on the top of pyramids. And you're like, that's insane. We have to stop doing that. But if you tried to stop them from doing that, they think you were insane for trying to prevent the sun from coming up. And then if you grabbed one of the Aztecs, you went through your time machine, you dropped him off in downtown LA, you might be running around all night trying to find somebody to sacrifice to make sure the sun comes up because he thinks you're insane. So um, one definition of insanity is, you know, how far off the cultural norm your understanding of the world is. Well, if we've got these echo chambers and the egregore lives at the bottom of the echo chamber, and the echo chamber creates an information silo that says something like masks work or whatever it is. Um, you know, everybody who believes what that egregore says is going to think everybody who's outside of that echo chamber is insane. So we're, I think that those things are going to continue. I think they're going to get um, more exacerbated and understanding our perceptions of reality itself are going to continue to diverge. Um, and as long as the wars between the, the egregores stay online, I think that we're likely to continue to see the lack of, you know, major violent outbreak, right? I mean, like, it seems to me like the best way to do it could be that the best way to make sure that we don't end up in a 
in a hot war is to make sure Elon lets everybody fight it out on Twitter. <laughs> you know? Yeah, this is probably um, what I see as the biggest danger of the kind of MAGA side or the kind of antithesis side, anti-establishment side, whatever, is that it, it's kind of going back to what you were talking about, Yarvinism, is that is that the show exists and it's kind of good. As mm-hmm. as bad as like an outrage like online war is, it's it's not a it's not a physical war. And at least the extreme ends of MAGA, I think, are more interested in um in that not being the case let's just say Mm -hmm. like you like you just look at you just look at stuff like january 6th and and you can say there are kind of equivalents on the quote-unquote woke side too but like Mm -hmm. this is a concentrated attempt of using of using physical force to influence political political power political succession and even if it's just one percent that's an incredibly dangerous one percent well, you know, like I think, I think what happened with January six was was basically a, I learned it from watching you, Dad. Moment, right? <laughs> um, I think that the, the people who were there had been, you know, watching a steady feed of similar stuff out of Minneapolis and you know Portland and Seattle and whatnot in their in their social feeds, and so, you know, the the bar for what was and wasn't appropriate behavior had shifted, and so they were just doing the same thing everybody else had been doing. Um, that's my opinion of January 6th. And I know that a lot of people don't agree with that. And the, but my, when I've expressed that opinion to other people, I could pretty well tell whether or not they agree with it, it has a lot to do with but like, okay, how okay. much faith, how much faith they have in the, in the federal government as a, as a, you know, non-corrupt organization. Right. You know, I don't even think um, that's, that's true though. Like most people who distrust the federal government, I, I would say I'm someone who distrusts the federal government, but like. You, you don't look at someone like rioting and think, hmm, maybe I should riot. <laughs> like, that, that's not a thing that occurs to most people. Well, you know, I mean, well, if you want to go and do the math on that, I mean, they, they was, what was it, maybe 400 people raided the Capitol and out of something like 60,000 people at the protest or whatever, you know, by 2020 standards, that was a mostly peaceful protest. Was it really only four hundred? It was. Oh my it was. It wasn't like, that. Wasn't that many. Wasn't that many that that raided it. Yeah, and, that's actually um, terrifying on its own. The idea that like four hundred <laughs> people who really care can like, I mean, they could have killed basically like every politician, right? Or like most politicians, right? Most yeah, federal politicians. Right? That's that's actually they're, terrifying they were on its own. They were they were larpers. They were trying to get their selfies. Right, just like yeah. the just like the the Antifa thing. They're like you know, a lot of conservatives are scared of Antifa. It's like yeah, no, they're larping too. They're just like you know, they're they're blowing off steam. Now they did a case. They did burn a police station down, and they did burn some other stuff down. But like they're not an organized, uh, you know, army or anything. The kids doing stupid shit for fun. Um, I mean, okay, and uh, I'm not. I, I've heard some reasonable critiques of this, but I think the anocracy line of argument is actually true, though. It, it just anocracy? seems true it, intuitively. Oh, sorry, I should explain this for the audience as well. Yes. Um, there's people have looked at, uh, I'm forgetting the book right now, but it's a book on essentially civil wars, and people have basically just tried to do a regression on these things. And there are some reasonable critiques of what, what is included and what isn't included as a factor, but... Um, one of the strongest factors, either one or two, is 
anocracy, which is essentially um, a government that is in a period of transition or a period of uncertainty. And I think LARPs can create that uncertainty even if they aren't real, right? I, I think that even if a LARP sure. does not overturn the rule of law, the, the LARP is correlated with eventually overturning the rule of law. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps, you know, perhaps. Um, I think that in general, um, your fear of the extreme right and fear of the extreme left should balance. And I think that if you go back and look at anecdotes, you'll you'll probably catch it. I mean, the last time anybody tried to kill any congressman, it was at the Republican baseball practice where the dude showed up with a SKS and, um, and he was like a, it was a Bernie bro. And he believed in the rhetoric that um, the Republicans are going to literally kill people by overturning Obamacare. Right. That was why he did it. Um, And so, yeah, you're going to get loonies. Um, But uh, it seems to me that even, and you you get loonies on the other side too, right? There's, you know, cases and like, you know. Yeah, maybe um, this is just a kind of pro-centralization argument because I I think you do do have a kind of woke end of it, but the woke is also pretty, they're also kind of like conspiratorial, right? They're just conspiratorial in the exact opposite direction. Um, The kind of like, and this is why I generally separate the wokes out with the kind of establishment uh, liberals or kind of COVID people, um, even though there's some overlap, is that like, mm-hmm. I, I don't think a lot of people are like, are, are like, do are going to do like riots for like vaccine mandates, right? Or riots for like, and, and this isn't to say that lockdowns aren't destructive and can cause like an equivalent or greater amount of damage, but I think there's actually less of a there. There is more of an autocracy risk there, but there's less of an anocracy risk there, and maybe that's actually still preferable. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, like you know, the thing about a vaccine mandate, the way it was implemented in the United States, is that anybody who like wanted to go through the procedure could fake a vaccine card. Could you really? And a lot of con- I mean, and, yes. and a lot of yeah, it's relatively simple. I mean, I got my vaccines, and you know, I you could absolutely take that card and scan it (laughs) why couldn't you (laughs) and it's not like anybody's checking you know like it's no like if there is a centralized database of that shit nobody's like you know referencing it when you go to your sports event you know like it it would be relatively easy thing to go around so um you know in some ways a vaccine mandate is kind of like weed being illegal (laughs) (laughs) right nobody's gonna riot over weed being illegal they're just gonna buy it illegally um now you know in some other countries that are doing being a lot more um rigorous about that then they might have a a tougher time with it right i mean like you know it seems to me as if based on my read the protests against vaccine mandates were a lot more egregious in france they were than they were here Um, i don't think that's particularly surprising i think france just has a stronger protest culture they do have a very strong protest culture i mean they were they were protesting the floyd murder and it's like you're in france (laughs) like what do you have to do with it yeah both of them pale in comparison to the fuel tax right the the yellow vests they're protecting oh yeah yeah, yeah. those protests were epic i saw one where they had a i think it was a guy that ran like a a septic tank clean out company and he drove his 
you know, tank full of sewage and he sprayed it on Congress as he drove by. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you would Google that. It's somewhere on YouTube. This dude's in a yellow vest. Yeah, it does seem, oh. it does seem like, <laughs> like 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 that's a step above Canadian truckers to me. I don't know. Yeah. But um you know, it's I you know, getting back to it. Uh there are the, a few more things that I want to talk about on the oh, agricultural side. On yeah. This way of thinking about power that maybe is a bit closer to um I don't want to say an establishment view, but a kind of like a kind of like rigorous view um is that when i'm looking at when i'm looking at like information spread i'm looking a lot at centralized institutions because this this is actually like another like exceptionally strong result from network science that people like really don't like talking about because a they've only done it on like a partisan framing i think but b it's also like very very bad for like the kind of current the current thing um which is that like the vast majority of social media um of like social media stories are like driven are driven like post uh post um mainstream news coverage and this includes fox in the mainstream so you have all these conservative things you have these kind of like maga agrigores they 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 like organize after the centralized institution actually it's not separate and of course they feed back into fox news as well and you, of course, you see the same thing uh, on the left wing as well. And my kind of institutional um, analysis here is that the the primary function that these egregores serve in terms of coordinating in the group way is that it gives a kind of collective narcissism. It gives a narcissism of the tenants that... Um, and if you think of what that means, like normally you have someone who, who maybe rises up the ranks because they're narcissistic. They have a, uh, image of grandeur of themselves. They, uh, talk about, uh, their own interests in a very compelling, charismatic way. They obviously want to accrue resources to themselves and accrue status to themselves. And this, well, gets them status, um, and they end up gaining influence through this essentially repeated exchange and similar to this kind of um, to this kind of uh, a domination of the powerful minority or the organized minority or the vocal minority, um, whichever frame you want to have. And the way this translates to an egregore is that it allows the same type of dynamic while providing two things. One, strength in numbers, and two, while avoiding at least the kind of surface level critique of, oh, you're just a narcissist, because this is a kind of group phenomenon, right? It's not just you who believes in this. It's this kind of, it's this kind of mass effect. And um, this, is the, this, is the type of, uh, this is the type of amplification that creates a stronger influence back from the social media side, back to the, to the side of bureaucracies, corporations, uh, etc. I think um, one thing that you need to consider when you're looking at this is that um, in my, across my breadth of talking to people about this topic, a lot of them seem to think that these group dynamics are being organized or driven by a, a, a central cabal. And I think that's exactly wrong. Um, I think what's going on is that the main influencers at the, at the cent, at the nexus nodes inside this, uh, inside a, you know, an egregore are 
they are not influencing it. They are being influenced by it. Yes. And uh, I will take it like, for instance, you know, QAnon, right? I mean, yeah. you know, what we know of QAnon right now is that they're dudes who it's run by two or three guys and, you know, sweaty neck beards and their mom's basement or something like that. Let's presume that's true. Um, They don't get to control what QAnon looks like, what it thinks. What they're doing is they're creating content that matches what the QAnon followers want to hear. So right, right. they so, are not so you're the saying, originators you're saying of all it. this time, the, like the account is saying all this time, and that's how it grew the audience that um, there's this cult of pedophiles that includes like all of these democratic politicians. And if it starts saying like, oh, oh maybe Hillary Clinton is a good person, uh, maybe maybe um, uh, yeah. Obama or whoever else is in, involved in this conspiracy theory, maybe they're all good people, then that, then this doesn't actually make all of the QAnon followers change directions. It makes the there is this kind of bigger effect here where they'll interpret that as, Oh, it's a secret message or, Oh, this, this person has been captured or whatnot. Right. 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 And, or, you know, further, I mean, if they continue to do that kind of thing, they just like, they would lose control of the thing. And then the thing would find something else that was feeding it what the thing wanted to hear. And in an, uh, era where media is paid by the click, your job in order to put food on your table is to figure out what the thing wants to hear and then say that thing. So the tail is wagging the dog and the tail is this group thick entity. Um, and then when you have an information silo around it, whatever the group think entity decides is real becomes reality. And you have to keep pushing that reality. Even if you didn't believe it, if you, if, if you didn't believe it, you, you couldn't go against it because then you'd, out of a job it's not even just that it's that right. you can go against it and it will just change nothing yeah it will just have right. no what, effect on what the will happen thing. is that you won't get the traffic and the other guy that was next to you who pushed what the aggregate wanted to hear will get the traffic and what matters is the traffic yeah so so like you can be liz cheney or you can be like um who, who's a kind of left-wing equivalent um you, you can be you can be like these kind of dissenters they just won't have an effect effect on the original audience. Like, right. e- and I'm not saying that there aren't personal consequences too. There, there, there are in many of these cases, but it's not just an incentive problem, right? Like we can have kind of like cancellation insurance. We can make it so that these people can speak out and maybe that will get more people on your team uh, who already believe it, but it won't necessarily uh, convince these people who were originally already like fully bought in uh, even if the people who they used to trust are are kind of speaking out against it now. Right. I mean, Glenn Greenwald publishes an article that says, trust the Democrats. Guess what? He just doesn't get as much traffic on that article. Right, right. Right. Um, and then, it, then the article, it was as if the article was never published. Yes, right. this is, hmm, yeah, this is very, this is very important, I think, is that, there's this new kind of there's this new kind of um, amplification where where salience where salience becomes the becomes the way of measurement right and instead of measuring things by how frequent they are um, people measure things by how frequently it's broadcast. Mm-hmm. I have I have this line. 
about why people believe in conspiracy theories that if you're waking up day and night and every single day you log on to your Facebook account and you see a video or you see a news story of a child being kidnapped, then you do start to think. Because all you're seeing is child kidnappings. If you're seeing a child kidnapping in front of you every single day, that would be terrifying. And you would have actual reason to suspect that there's this kind of ring of child kidnappers. But because that's not reflective of reality, because that's kind of aggregated, this this hell that's spread out across a country of 300 million people all onto one single person's Facebook feed, this creates this demonic world which has no reflection on reality. And you can see the same thing with police shootings. You can see the same thing with mass killings. You can see the same thing with uh, COVID deaths in children. You can see the same thing with vaccine reactions and so on and so forth. It's just everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, um, in the, in the HWFO group, we call this, I've been calling it nut picking. Mm, Yes. It's like going through a turd and picking the nut out of it, you know? But um, it's, it's not quite that. It's it's emergent. And I mean, yeah. I, I'm sure there are some accounts, like there, there's like libs of TikTok, whatever, who, who are like right. literally just doing this, right? Who, who are literally just posting the most extreme, crazy people. Right. But mm-hmm. I think this is also something that circulates naturally, right? I, I think that, I, I don't think that you need to have a, I'm not sure if this was the case of whether there was either a Russian or a kind of democratic leaning operative who who found the George Floyd um, video and wanted to wanted to make it go viral. I think something like that goes viral no matter what. Yeah, no, I agree. And it, I mean, if you watched it, you're like, oh, my God. You, first thing you do is you call up your buddy and say, have you seen this thing? Holy shit. Right. It was awful. And I mean, like, you know, was it any more awful than, you know, um, Philander Castile? You know, I don't think so. I think it was less awful than the Philander's Castile shooting, but that didn't really cause anybody to, to, to bat an eye because of when it happened and the way in which it happened. Um, and, you know, uh, and it was been, because it didn't hit the series scissor juice. Like, uh, do you well, want to you explain know, that for the like audience? Yeah. Okay. So, um, I'm trying to figure out how I want to tell a story. All right. I know how I'm going to tell it. Okay. So there was a programmer and he sent a story to Scott Alexander at Slate Star Codex. It was very alarming and he wanted Scott to publish it. So Scott published it. Halloween 2019, I think. I think is when it got published. It goes like this. It's a programmer. It's working with artificial neural networks and also trying to study virility. And um, they've got a company, and they're putting together this thing that's going to try and generate the most, the most viral headline, right? And because they're a marketing company, right? They want to be able to test these things. So they um, had a, um, so they had this thing, and they were going to train it on Reddit posts, and um, training the headlines to like you know the most popular Reddit posts, kind of boring. Like the, the AI spit out something that said like Donald Trump is no longer the president. All transgenders are the president. Right? That's not very interesting. And um, then if you train it to be like the least popular, most downvoted stuff, then it would be like some sentence about penis pills. And um, if you train it against 
is you could train it against the most controversial stuff. Well, they were testing their AI against their own internal like Slack server. And um, the programmer who was working, doing the, the heavy lifting on it was an entry-level lady named Shiri. So Shiri uh, can't get it to work. And um, they call this meeting. And they're going off of the thing, and, and she was saying, well, see, look, this is what it, when I do it against my internal Slack server, this is what it says. You know, and, and there's this, like, you know, and, and she can't figure out why it's not controversial, right? And so they get into this uh, discussion about the thing that got pulled, and um, it was uh, some statement, some innocuous programming statement that was obviously the worst possible way to write a piece of code. I mean, it was just obviously wrong. And the narrator says it took them 10 minutes in the meeting before they realized that half the people in the meeting said that that was obviously the true and best way to write that piece of code. And the whole room got into such an egregious argument over how awful or perfect this statement was that they ended up shouting and screaming at each other and throwing stuff and two of the people ended up fired, including, including Shiri. And it was only a couple of hours later when they dawned on the remaining people in the office that holy shit, it did work. It generated the most controversial statement possible. So they're like, oh my God, we have a super weapon. They call up DARPA. They talk to some general. They're like, we could destabilize anything with this, you know, AI. The guy's like, I want a, I want a demonstration. I'm like, okay, what do you want to demonstrate it on? He says, Mozambique. I'm like, Three weeks later, the Mozambique goes through a revolution. And um, eventually the, the company goes under because it was like a law of wrongful termination suit and all this kind of stuff that, that emerged from the thing. And so uh, Shiri's scissor, they called it, died. And the terminology they used was scissor statements. They said that a scissor statement was a statement that was so controversial that it was guaranteed to tear any social group apart. So um, this guy... He's writing to Scott Alexander. He's like, I don't, you know, I just moved on, you know, it was a couple of years ago and then something pegged in the news. And I was like, oh no. And he went back and he rebuilt the code and he ran it. And he realized that one of the top 50 scissor statements that they generated from their Reddit comb was um, Republican Supreme Court nominee accused of sexual uh, harassment as a teenager. And so he says, I don't know who has the scissor, but somebody has it and you need to unplug from social media and run. It's about to be awful. Maybe the Chinese have it. I don't know. Now, this story is completely fictional, totally made up, total bullshit. A, you know, artificial neural networks don't really work that way. They would need to understand what they're doing and you couldn't just train it based on titles. But the concept there is that the most controversial stuff gets the most traffic. And the wider concept is that if we were to try and generate this Shiri Scissor program, in my opinion, what we've generated in Twitter and Facebook is that with each of us acting as an artificial neural network node inside that program, as it was described in the fictional Halloween story. So 
when you have this outrage engine and you have everybody tuning their stuff to try and generate outrage to get clicks, and then everybody's sharing the outrage stuff, that's nested system, the connection between media and social media and the like and share mechanics within social media are naturally gravitate towards finding the thing that is mo- maximally controversial that we have the closest to a 50-50 split on and elevating that thing. Which is why politics is always about not the most important issue, but the most controversial one. Yes. And is also why the popular vote in the United States is almost entire, is almost always in the last 10, 15, 20 years, a three or 4% break, right? You don't get 60, no, no team's ever going to get 60% because of this. Because what they're arguing about is intentionally maximally controversial, which means that it's as close to a 50-50 as they can get because they need people to argue about it. Makes sense? Yeah. One more metaphor that I think is crucial here is that what is most controversial seems most obvious. You, you don't die right. for something that you yourself understand to be controversial. Or, or in fact, spend like four hours arguing about it on Twitter. If you think, okay, there are a lot of perspectives on this and it's, and it's quite chaotic, you just sit yourself down and you say, okay, I'm not going to bother to convince this person. Right. If you think it is the only truth, if you think it is, it is a mark of evil and it is an obvious moral sign for you to believe mm-hmm. in something, that's when it truly becomes controversial and that there's mm-hmm. that kind of paradox there. Yeah. Yeah. I had, I, I've done a, a relatively good job in the past year and a half of bilging my friends lift and not interacting with folks that I would end up in those kind of knockdown dragouts with, but I ended up in a PM exchange with somebody two weeks ago where they told me that the world would be better off if I died because I shared a mask efficacy study with him and he was like a zero COVID guy. And um, I was just like, wow, geez, you folks are still out there, aren't you? Um, But that's a scissor, right? Yeah. And the reason it's a scissor is because for several reasons. I mean, one, um, people have a different understanding of the reality of uh, the efficacy of of mask mandates for COVID. Um, People have a, a differing understanding of how deadly COVID truly is. And then the thing that makes it the scissor is the, the morality play, right? The, Mm. your, you value your freedom over my life bit. That's what makes it, that's what would keys people off, right? Or the reverse, right? You know, it's like you are killing me by you not wearing a mask was the, was where things got really sticky in 2020. And there are some people still hanging their hat on that right you know it's a hard thing once you've hung your hat on that hat rag hook it's hard to unhang it because you know you don't want to admit you were wrong or whatever and that's you build your worldview around that and you're going to end up that's not something that's easy to admit that you're wrong about particularly if you've behaved in such a way over the last year or like if you canceled christmas because of covid you don't want to go back and think that you canceling christmas was the wrong thing to do right yeah 
So um, that makes it hard for people to change their minds about it. They can't. They can't believe they could have been wrong about something so big as that, right? You know. Yeah, and as as we talked about before, one of the biggest empirical results is that it was this group effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. What do you make of people who who swing from one end of the pendulum to the other? Like people mm. who who fall out of one one egregore, who manage to descent, and then not too long later, they're they're on the other they're on the other side. They're on like the other extreme egregore. Yeah. I think it's similar to when people like used to be a devout to one religion and flip over to being devout to another religion. I think they just need something to believe in, you know, that's mm. that there's a, there's a fundamental um, need in most human brains to have some kind of guiding force that is not you, that you trust will tell you the right thing to do because trying to think about what the right thing to do is, is hard. Thinking in general is hard. And so even intelligent people, a lot of times just, they just want to outsource that. They want to outsource what is appropriate behavior to a book or to a feed or to a something because it's less to think about so they can focus on thinking about, thinking about other things. And so if you get, you know, disenfranchised by, you know, Mormonism, maybe you adopt wokeism as your replacement or reverse of that, right? You know, whatever. Um, and uh, so when people flip, it's usually, I think it's usually just an, it's not an indicator of not being intelligent, I don't think. I think it's just an indicator of someone who seeks, um, you know, seeks uh, behavioral guidance outsourcing. Hmm. I right? actually see it or as what? something different. Okay. I, I think that the reason why these changes happen is that, there's something I call the minimum change heuristic. What is the revolutionary ideology that offers the minimum change in what I need to believe from what is cur- what I currently believe? Okay. And the funny thing with these kind of conspiratorial ideologies is that everything is kind of hidden, right? Everything is moving in the background there aren't any kind of fundamental assumptions about human nature per se that are baked in. And so you can reasonably argue that it's easier for someone who say believes in the tenets of liberalism of blank slateism to go not just to woke, but also to MAGA or to also to QAnon instead of believing that they're actually extreme differences in individual intelligence that people are extremely incompetent that coordination is quite difficult and really a miracle if it happens at all um there are all these kind of counterintuitive facts that are buried even in most people's normal worldviews and because of that it's harder to to get them towards a kind of statistical understanding or a probabilistic understanding or an emergent understanding of all of these phenomenon than it is to get them to believe in a conspiracy theory because there's just less that you need to learn and less that you need to verify and less that you need to understand in order to get there. And I think this is especially oh. true if you look at the, the more recent movements, the more recent egregores that have arisen that are really kind of forks of old things forks of protestantism forks of uh, liberalism and so on and so forth um i think that what you're saying um 
I think there's definitely some truth to it. Uh, like for instance, that's one, potentially one of the reasons why um, modern woke wokeism is has largely mapped over, you know, Calvinist Christianity. You know, there's a lot of extremely close parallels to it, and it's yeah, because or, it's or easy Gnosticism. To, it, I think that's the flip, right? That's the flip where you allow people to to take a 180 is the Gnostic Gnostic flip. Is you go from having a world where you have all these assumptions to a world where your moral alignment is still true, but the assumptions are subverted by this conspiracy and by the secret knowledge. I I think that's something that's like very deep. Okay. Uh, Now, the the pushback I'll give to you on that is um, if you go back and you... uh, reread Eric Hoffer, True Believer, and that kind of thing. Like one of the things that he references in there is that some of the famous Nazis were saying, you know, I can't make a Nazi out of a skeptic, but I can make a Nazi out of a communist and I can make a Nazi out of a fascist. Because those kinds of people from a personality perspective are seeking something to believe in. And so like that when you know, because Germany, you know, pre-war Germany was kind of a, a soup of three different competing movements. You had your communists and your Nazis and your fascists, right? And and what they were saying was that they, you know, from a psychological perspective, it was easier to turn a, fa- a dyed-in-the-wool fascist or a dyed-in-the-wool communist into a Nazi, even though they were opposing factions, because what they were looking for was the personality, um, the personality proclivity to be dyed-in-the-wool about something, right? Um... So I think that there's something to be said for that too. When for when the flippers, you know, somebody flips from one thing to another, it's probably just it's at least partially due to personality profiling. Yeah. Um, sorry, why is that a pushback? Um, oh, I I just um, it seemed uh, like I don't know that it's necessarily uh, the case that um, any one of those ideologies in that example are have much of an overlap. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But the important thing for them was not whether or not they were an ideology that was close, that had a lot of overlapping underlying tendencies. It was just whether or not the person was like a true believer. Yeah, so right. so here's the thing about the minimum change heuristic, and especially what I call the Gnostic flip. I'm not sure if I'm going to stick with that terminology. Is that you can have big changes by taking basically one assumption, right? And and that assumption in the case of the Gnostic flip is um, the world you were ordered to see or the world, the, the apparent world in front of you is like constructed by a secret, um, is constructed by some kind of secret cabal and you just need to invert it, right? right. Like taking, like it only, t- this is kind of like a, a, a metaphor, but like, it only takes one bit to like take a number and make it negative, right? It's basically right. the same. That's the metaphor for what's happening here is that you can actually do an entire like inversion of ideology, say like communism and uh, Nazism and maintain a lot of that desire for order or a lot of that desire for control and top down narrative that exists. Right. Right. So and I think the, com- the example of communism and Nazism is, an affirmation of this point, not right. a disconfirmation. Right. I mean, like, you know, the, what you're describing is like very easily seen in the conspiracy theory community where you can be like, no way, exactly. it's not the UFOs, it's the lizard people, <laughs> right? Or whatever. Um, 
So, you know, that's kind of thing. I mean, like the thing about, I don't want to dirt on the conspiracy community though, because I'm kind of conspiracy adjacent, to be honest, you know, um, there's a lot of things that are in the conspiracy community that like come out true. And when they come out true, that, you know, allows QAnon the, the fire it needs to work, you know, like there is no way that you're going to be able to convince me that Epstein killed himself. For one, <laughs> okay, and yeah. For so two, the problem like, here you know, isn't necessarily it, you know UFOs like, are real now too, right? I mean, like the fact that they published the you know all the UFO stuff in 2020 was just a. I, I think I feel like they were just waiting for a time when everybody was freaking out so bad that they wouldn't notice the UFOs, and they were like, "Oh yeah, alien spacecraft, U.S. airspace, it's cool. Don't worry about it." Yeah, the problem <laughs> is like off the, the discrediting of the conspiracy theorists, right? It's it's the it's the the disproportionate use of that label right it, it's the kind right. of inappropriate it's the wider stigmatization and this kind mm-hmm. of like it, it's actually like do you know what it is it's the same thing that the antithesis people do um but just applied to conspiracy theorists right so mm-hmm. you had all the people who are who are saying like oh this epstein stuff it's a conspiracy theory oh, oh this kind of like lab leak stuff it's a conspiracy theory it's like no you guys have no understanding of what a conspiracy theory actually is. Like there, there are, you can, you can make it, make up like anything as a conspiracy theory, right? You can say that there's like a global cabal um, behind basically everything, but sometimes like people just do things, right? Like sometimes people just abduct, uh, abduct children on like a kind of individual level that it, there's not like some super complex, like worldwide operation here, or I guess it might be worldwide because of all his jets, but there's no, some, there's no like super secret, like mass coordination going on here. It's just Epstein and like a few other people like doing, doing their like delirious or like doing their kind of like um, terrible things. And right. I mean, like there, there could have been some more conspiracy to the Epstein thing. I think it's possible that, you know, uh, foreign intelligence agencies or domestic ones were working with him, but there's no way we're ever going to prove that. And so it's kind of like not almost not worth talking about. Um, one of the things that, um, that you're seeing that I'm seeing now with the conspiracy folks and the egregore conversation is that a distributed action by an egregore would look like a coordinated action by a cabal to a conspiracy theorist. So, like, if you go back and look, watch the Majid Nawaz podcast with Joe Rogan. Yeah. I, I don't think that's, like, a very surprising thing to say, though, because most things look like conspiracy theories to conspiracy theorists. Right. But, like, you know, if you go and listen to him, like, he, he came in very equipped to defend his idea that um, a lot of the modern uh, COVID policy was world, I think, World Economic Forum, you know, cabal stuff. And he had a lot of information that pointed that direction, but... You know, I can tell you, you know, that people, no centralized cabal claimed that Joe Rogan was taking horse dewormer. That was an egregore that decided to elevate that because it was viral. And it was viral for many reasons. One of the reasons was that that egregore doesn't like Joe Rogan. And one of the reasons was that egregore was down on ivermectin and one of the reasons was the opposing egregore was high on ivermectin. And <laughs> one of the reasons was nobody wanted to even think about the fact that Joe took like 10 drugs and ivermectin was only one of them. And one of the reasons was the CDC doesn't want a bunch of people taking ivermectin because they'd rather 
more people take get vaccines. And one of them was, you, you know, all of these sort of things all collide, collided into the Joe Rogan horse dewormer meme. And, um, and he took it on the chin from the egregore. Egregore went after him really heavily for that. And it looked coordinated, but mm. it wasn't. It was just viral, right? You know. Yes. If the FDA, the FDA was tweeting about horse dewormer, they were doing it at the end. They weren't doing it at the beginning. They weren't part of a cabal to push that. They were just trying to get clicks. So, you know, like that's, like, so that's an example of these egregores themselves are going to take actions and they're going to seem as if they're coordinated when they're not. Or you know, even the language is kind of like... Mind space way. It's kind of difficult because you're you're basically using the biological metaphor, right? You're you're saying like, okay, there there are these processes that do things, and they're not necessarily like, they're not necessarily like a, agentic, but they're using using them as a metaphor, almost like of obscures this, right? Because I don't know, like, well, is there a better way to say this? There, there's no way to say it that that doesn't seem either too passive or like almost assigning too much agency to it. So I guess this metaphor is the best that we have. But like, you know. yeah, it, it kind of reflects. I think this is actually like, I don't know. I think this type line of argumentation can be misused, and I, I wouldn't mind if people disagreed with it. But I think this is a case where it's actually true that the lack of language to describe this kind of this kind of emergent coordination is an indicator that it's a it's like historically a rarer problem yeah i think this is relatively new this like that um you know emergent mimetic coordination in a short time frame that is reactive to current events um is it's it it's completely new now we can argue about whether or not that shows that the egregore has agency but in order to do that really we would just mire ourselves down in the semantics of how we define the word agency that's fair as well it does or it (laughs) does or it doesn't depending on how you define agency right so um and it's not you know this is a i will say that this in my mind is a level up from you know a virus wants to spread that doesn't mean the virus has agency I think this has got more agency than that. Okay. Whether or not this thing is thinking deeply is a different question. But it seems to me that this is definitely a level up from, you know, uh, money wants to be free or whatever, that kind of thing. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's it's definitely, you know, it definitely has more agency than those kind of um, those kind of phrases and sayings, in my opinion. Um, how much does it have? Can it be kited? Can it be redirected? Who's figuring out how to redirect it? How rich are they and how rich are they about to be? I don't know, right? You know. Yeah, I think um, we're... I mean like China is certainly trying. Right? Oh, China yes. has decided oh, yes. that the way to do it is to put up a giant wall and control all internet information and then run that way. But at the same time, you know I don't know that I don't know that the you know China's leadership is as smart as we think. I think they might have been captured by their own. They might have been drinking their own Kool Aid with this lockdown. I think Putin was drinking his own Kool Aid with this Ukraine invasion. I think both of those world agents, you know, both of those powers were so information siloed about themselves that they weren't thinking about what it would mean to try and get the country of China to zero COVID or 
whether or not they literally legitimately had the military power to to run a shock and awe campaign against a country full of Cossacks. <laughs> yeah, know? it's it's been a um, very bad year for autocracy. Right. I mean, like they it's not that I mean, they're making poor decisions and you're trying to figure out from the outset in, why did you guys, why are you guys making these poor decisions? And you know, the, the, I mean, the easy answer, the HWFO answer is that they're in an echo chamber too. <laughs> right. They I see think the that's world a pretty, differently. pretty widespread answer. Right. You know, yeah. like they're in, you know, it's like everyone's in an echo chamber. Everyone's making decisions based on the worldview that they have that is increasingly siloed as the, we continue into the future years, these inform these, you know, these echo chambers are going to become more and more siloed and there's going to be more and more people that make increasingly confusing decisions from the outside because those decisions look right to them. So I think 20, you know, the, the 21st century could be a, a century of, weirder and weirder shit happening oh yeah it's been four hours we're incredibly yeah. black filled so i think it's time <laughs> for the final question <laughs> all right go for it what is something that has too much order and needs more chaos or something that is too much chaos and needs more order that you haven't talked about yet <laughs> oh my god i don't know the first thing i could think of was you know like putting on my discordian hat and just saying full chaos and go for it right um, <laughs> no one has said the meta answer of everything needs more chaos yet <laughs> that's a new answer um you know uh well okay hmm do i believe everything needs more chaos no could i make a case for it maybe <laughs> Um, if I were to make that case, I would say that um, the best, the, let's walk through this a little bit further. So um, we postulated that the echo chambers are going to continue to tighten and that they are going to, and the bubbles are going to continue to shrink and that more and more people are going to see the, the people outside their bubble is insane to them. Um, the more order answer is to, re-encapsulate everybody in the same bubble right would be to make it so that we all have one shared reality again the the more chaos answer is well we could just egg the thing on to its race to the bottom so it finally hits rock bottom and forces people to go outside again and in that case what you're doing is you're trying to funneling every echo chamber down until it's an echo chamber of one so that would be your, your full chaos solution to the problem, right? Which of those is easier to achieve? Because um, it might be achieved at both ends of the horseshoe. Um, I'm not sure I trust any organization to try and pull all of our sense-making into one bubble anymore. Um, so maybe the full chaos is the answer. And then by the time we get all the way down to there, things are a little bit hairier. But it also forces people to have the kind of personal social interactions they need to have to be able to form their own communities again as the internet has destroyed the old ones. So there's your case for full chaos. And chew on it. All right. That's a, that's a great way. It's not necessarily a way that's even more optimistic. But it is a great way to end, this, end the show.
That was my interview with BJ Campbell. If you like the show, as always, give it a subscribe and leave a review or comment about what you liked or to suggest some future guests. And as always, you can share on social media or with a friend. This episode had a lot more disagreement than prior episodes. And trust me, there will only be more in the future. I hope you guys like it and enjoy the process of hopefully, eventually, getting closer to the truth. As always, we'll have a great episode for you next week too.